Two episodes ago, I introduced you to what I think is the best analogy for capturing the relationship between God and creation. That analogy being the relationship between the author of a story and the story the author conceives of. Uh, I also explored some uh, some possible areas in which areas of theology in which that analogy might help us to think better uh, about those particular areas of theology. Last episode, I had my friend and boss at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, Braxton Hunter, come on the show to discuss the analogy and push back and offer alternatives. And one of the things that came up during that conversation, which was expected, uh, is that the um, analogy seems to suit a determinist and Calvinist uh, soteriology better than a non-Calvinist one, uh, like that which Braxton Hunter holds. Um, so we talked about that in last episode, and this week, we're going to have another guest on, this time a fellow Calvinist, to discuss how we Calvinists and determinists might be able to leverage this analogy uh, in, in areas of soteriology without falling prey to the charge that, that uh, Calvinism and determinism make God out to be the author of evil. And one of the things that we'll be exploring is how the, different, how the difference between two particular authors in reality, namely Leo Tolstoy, on the one hand, and Fyodor Dostoevsky on the other hand, how it is that the relationship or the differences between these two authors might help us to identify some God as author analogies which are better than others. All of that and more on this episode of Theapologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date, and if you're not already aware, this show is part of the Trinity Commission, a network of podcasts and YouTube channels that have that, in one way, shape, or form, or another, are um, uh, they have a connection with Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. I, for example, am an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And if you're interested in a Christian higher education, that is affordable, both in terms of money and in terms of time, uh, then I'd encourage you to check out Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary by going to trinitysem, that's S-E-M as in short for seminary, trinitysem.edu, uh, where you can get that very kind of affordable higher Christian education uh, and possibly take a class there with me. Um, the other shows that are part of this uh, Trinity Commission include the Bible Brodown, uh, Trinity Radio, which is hosted by by the president of Trinity, Braxton Hunter, and a few other shows as well. So if you're interested in following those other shows and don't already, then go to Facebook and search for the Trinity Commission and you'll be able to find that and learn more there. Uh, also, just as a heads up, if you are somebody that has been following along the uh, Biblical Hebrew 101 lectures that I have been um, uh, pushing out at an irregular cadence, um, and if you've been waiting for the third lecture in that series, well, you don't need to 
wait, wait any more. I just recently published the third lecture right here in this channel. So now Biblical Hebrew 101 has three lectures, seminary quality lectures uh, on how to um, read and how to read Biblical Hebrew. First on the Hebrew alphabet, the consonants that make up the Hebrew alphabet, and then the second lecture was on vowels and other markings that are collectively known as the system called uh, Nikud, the individual markings called Nikud Dot. Um, and now the third lecture in the series is available, which is on how to put how to start putting those things together to form nouns. Also, I will be publishing a video in the very near future on how to start learning how to type Hebrew, uh, as I think that that will benefit you as you do your um, as you study biblical Hebrew. So I just wanted to make you aware of those. Um, I don't really have much else to say except perhaps a... Oh, actually, there are two more things I'll want to say. Firstly, um, we are now one week, as of today, into a new program that Jonathan Pritchett um, has started, a new sort of uh, body transformation uh, program that involves resistance band training. Um, if you're interested in uh, doing that, it's not too late to get on the bandwagon. Just check out the Theology Geek Fitness group at Facebook or the, tr or the Theology, um, Theology Geeks Fitness YouTube channel. Um, and you'll be able to learn more. As I said, we're one week into it, and I'm already experiencing benefits that uh, that I'm um, appreciative of. And so, if you want to make a change um, for your for for, the, for your physical health, this might be for you. It's not a you know um, new you know thinner uh, you know six packs abs in in six weeks or that kind of thing. No, this is a 24 week program meant to establish something that will last and not something that will uh, you know that will benefit you in the short term, but then you'll give it up and revert to old ways and it'll disappear. No, this is meant to be a lasting change, that uh, a lifestyle change that Jonathan Pritchett is taking us through. So I'd encourage you to check that out. And the only other thing I'll just mention is a is on a personal note, a, a bit of a prayer request. Uh, I think I've mentioned this on my other stream, Rethinking Hell Live. Um, I and a co-editor, um, a name you will almost assuredly be familiar with, that's Paul Copan. Um, he was one of my fellow plenary speakers at the most recent Rethinking Hell conference. He and I have submitted a book proposal that we've crafted together to a big Christian academic publisher, and we're waiting to hear back from them. This would be a phenomenal opportunity for me personally in terms of my academic career. Um, I don't have a terminal degree yet, and if I were to get published by a big-name uh, Christian academic publisher, that would be huge for my uh, PhD applications in the near future and eventually you know, um, uh, job applications for teaching. Um, but it would also, I think, be a very important uh, contribution to the debate the intramural Christian debate over the nature of hell, uh, and, and help progress that debate in and, and the conversation therein in meaningful ways. So I think it'll be a very valuable resource if if a publisher picks it up, and we and both Paul and I would love to make um, this first publisher that we have approached be the one that accepts our proposal. So be praying about that, um, and if we are um, blessed enough to get our proposal accepted, then you'll very soon hear more from me, the details about what the book is going to be. So with all of that out of the way, I guess I'll um, stop blabbering on and, and, and rambling pseudo-incoherently, and uh, I'll, let me tell you just very briefly about the interview guests that you're going to be watching here in a moment. Um, I actually don't know this person personally and wasn't very familiar 
familiar with him at all. But when I started planning the series that you're watching right now of the apologetics, uh, where we're exploring the God as author analogy, I happened to notice an announcement on Facebook from one of my Facebook connections saying that he was um, about to submit a master's thesis on the very topic of the God as author analogy. And what's more, the, the topic of this um, thesis was going to be on how it might be used to support Calvinistic determinism without without falling prey to the charge that determinism and Calvinism make God out to be the author of evil. As you can imagine, I saw this as fairly uh, providential and thought, hey, this would be great uh, to include as an episode of this series that I'm doing on the God as author analogy. And so I reached out to the person who posted that. His name is Parker Setacase. Uh, and I learned um, that uh, that he has a blog and a podcast and a YouTube channel. And, and it was just fascinating reading his thesis. I asked him if he would be willing to share it with me and then let me ask him about it in an episode of the show. And he graciously agreed. And it was absolutely fascinating. And the, and the, um, the conversation that we had, uh, I think, was very fascinating as well. And I think you'll enjoy it, whether or not you share uh, my impression that Parker's, um, that Parker's approach does, in fact, make determinism supportable without making God the author of evil in a um, in a meaningful sense. Um, so I think you'll find it fascinating either way, and I hope that you will provide feedback in the comments um, section after the show is over. Um, this this conversation that I had with Parker is pre-recorded, um, but I will be in the live chat throughout most of the replay, which will begin here momentarily. So if you have questions or thoughts, I may be able to engage while the pre-recorded interview is playing. And then after the pre-recorded interview is done, I'll come back in to bid you adieu and sign off. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive right into my interview with Parker Setacase on how the God as author analogy can support Calvinism and determinism without making God out to be the author of evil. Here we go. Faith in Christ from a very early age, or was it something that you came to embrace later in life? Yeah, dude, uh, again, man, thanks so much for, for having me on here. This is awesome. Uh, I did grow up in a Christian home. Uh, Parker, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate having you on. And um, I want to do what I often do at the beginning of interviews with guests that have not been on my shows before, uh, which is ask you about your faith background or, or testimony. Were you raised in a Christian household and did, did you affirm faith in Christ from a very early age or was it something that you came to embrace later in life? Yeah, dude, uh, again, man, thanks so much for, for having me on here. This is awesome. Uh, I did grow up in a Christian home. I was raised uh, in an EV free uh, church, and my parents love the Lord. My dad uh, knows the Lord like no one else I know. He raised us to love the Lord, but uh, at a very early age, started living kind of two different lives who I was with my folks and who I was with uh, the wrestling team, the football team, all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, super du duplicitous lifestyle. And uh, also, we went to church in the Promised Land, uh, that's Wheaton, Illinois. And I learned at a very early age that you, you tuck in your sweater vest and you leave your sin at the door. You know, we don't talk about that messy stuff here. Uh, and so it wasn't until college where I got involved with this ministry ministry called Athletes in Action. And there I saw dudes that I look up to and respect on the wrestling team, confessing their sins to each other, uh, battling pornography with each other, um, all sorts of stuff like that. Con like confessing, watching out for each other's backs. It was awesome. And then I, I got to see like what Christian what Christian brothers really do, what Christianity really looks like, people extending grace to each other, trusting in Jesus. It's been awesome. So it wasn't until my junior year of college that I'd say I really came to embrace the faith. And then 
surrender my life to Jesus. And I said, Mm -hmm. Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. Wherever you want me to go, I'll go. I don't care. This is, my life is for you. And uh, yeah, since then, he's he's completely changed my life around. It's been awesome. Praise God. you know, uh, there are lots of Christians with stories like that, um, but there are also lots of Christians whose faith tends to stay at something of a very lay level, um, mm-hmm. whereas you are one of these people, one of these Christians who have, for one reason or another, found the study of some deep area of theology, like systematic theology or philosophical theology or whatever. Um, they dive really deep into those and, and, and become, you know, much more thoughtful and, 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 and deep thinking, I think, in certain areas than, than sort of the average ordinary Christian, which is not in any way to disparage them, but but it does make me want to ask, um, what is it, wh- how did you become really interested in the uh, complexities of systematic theology such that you would, as we'll discuss momentarily, um, devote your master's, well, your master's education to systematic theology, let alone your, your master's thesis? How, how do yeah. you develop this love and this passion for systematic theology? Yeah, well, dude, so I gave my life to Christ. I, I, I fully surrendered. Whether, whether I was a Christian beforehand, I still wrestle with that. But I fully surrendered to the Lord on my junior, after my junior year of college. And I was a little bit embarrassed. Like, I have grown up in the church my whole life. I, my dad would make us read the Bible in the morning, and I didn't know any of it. I just didn't know. And so I was embarrassed. Like, I, I should know all this stuff. People would ask me questions. Uh, and I had, like, terrible answers for them. And um so right after that, I started living with uh, one of my teammates, uh, one of my good, one of my best friends now, and he's a, he's a big skeptic. And so he kept on asking me, "Hey, why do you believe this? Why do you go to church? What are you doing on Sunday? Why are you doing this? Why don't you do this? Why do you do this? Why don't you believe? What about Buddhism? What about this?" And I just didn't have good answers. I had good enough answers to like get him off my back, but I knew if he would ask me another question, I would have been completely stumped. I don't know why I believe what I believe, and so I started getting to apologetics. And then studying apologetics, I realized, man, I should know the theology behind this. I, I started reading my Bible a ton as well, but I need to know the theology behind this. And I uh, started getting into some more systematic theology, started with Kevin Van Hooser, uh, John Frame, um, and just some of these uh, reformed giants. And then I, I, from there, I thought, well, I also need to know some more philosophy. And so I started studying some philosophy and that's how I got into uh, systematic and, and philosophical theology. Awesome. Uh, you have a blog, a podcast, and a YouTube channel uh, called Parker's Pensies. Um, do you want to tell viewers a little bit about what sort what sorts of things you cover there in, in those places? And at the end of the show, I'll, I'll tell them uh, or I'll ask you to tell them how they can find these things online. Yeah, for sure. So it's called Parker's Pensies. Uh, I understand that it's, it's Ponce's. But I'm an American swine, right? So I'm not going to be pretentious about it. Uh, and I named that after uh, uh, Blaise Pascal's uh, Pensies or Ponces. And Pascal died before uh, before he could finish this book. And so we're kind of left trying to put the pieces together. And I thought, if I wait until I'm done with all my education, I could get hit by a bus <laughs> tomorrow. And I got all these thoughts I want to share with people. So I'm just going to put them out there. So I started with my blog. And I blog. Uh, it started more with apologetics and kind of moved into f- some more philosophy, some theology, just some some random stuff too. Um, but I do some series in there where I'll, I'll go through like uh, intro to philosophy kind of stuff, um, intro to logic, just little things like that. As I learn, I try to teach as well because that's how I learn best. And then uh, I have a, a YouTube channel because I put up this frog video. I had these giant African bullfrogs, and it ended up getting uh, right now it's got 37 million views. This one video. So I got this huge platform, and I'm like, well, how do I convert this into, you know, teaching people about theology? So I started this podcast, and 
so far it's hard to get all the frog people over into the <laughs> theology, but we're working on it. So yeah, and so my podcast is by the same name. Very cool. Uh, well, like I said, at the end of the show, I'll have you tell listeners, viewers, where they can go to find it. Uh, but one last question in this sort of introductory portion where we're just getting to know you. Um, you have, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your master's thesis, but your master's thesis is being done at the school you're getting your master's in systematic theology, which is Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, or TEDS, as it's often called. Um, why did you choose TEDS for your master's, and, and what, what do you hope to do in the future with that degree under your belt? as it were. Yeah. So, um, so I came here because of DA Carson, the dude's a legend. I'd watched hours and hours and hours of his videos. Uh, I really love that guy. And, uh, also, um, got, uh, be became interested in this, this young lady and turns out she works as an athletic trainer here at Trinity in the undergrad. So we got married and then found out that because she's worked here for three years, I get a tuition waiver. So I haven't paid for any classes, which has been awesome. Uh, but I did find out that when, when the year I got here, D.A. Carson uh, retired. Mm. So that was uh, really sad. But I did get to take a class uh, last winter with him, uh, like an in intensive class, like uh, five days, eight hours a day kind of thing, which is pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. So I came to TED's because of these. I, I, I'm an evangelical. Um, I love being evangelical. I love that name. I love that moniker. I'm not letting go of it. I love TED's because it's a evangelical bastion. And... Um, and I got to come here for free. So actually, I'm, I'm doing two master's degrees, uh, one in systematic theology, one in theological studies. And uh, they dropped their philosophy of religion program. So I'm, I'm basically just doing a philosophy of religion with systematic and some some languages in there as well. Um, and then, I, uh, Lord willing, uh, I'll be applying to a terminal master's degree in philosophy uh, pretty soon this month. Uh, I would love to go on and, and do a master's in philosophy. And then, Lord willing, a PhD in philosophy as well. I'd love to be a philosophy prof and teach at a, a seminary nearby adjunct. I think that would be like dream come true for me, but yeah, we'll see. Well, I, I for one hope those dreams come true, if for no other reason uh, than that as a not very philosophically oriented Calvinist, um, I love mm. discovering very philosophically oriented Calvinists mm -hmm. like Guillaume Bignon and, and hopefully yourself yep. as well. So I'll be uh, praying that your dreams come true. Um, awesome. So let's let's transition into the, the topic of our discussion today. And you know, and viewers, if this isn't their very first episode, uh, will know that I have been doing a series of which there have been two parts thus far, discussing the analogy um, of the uh, the analogy of an author of a story as an analogy meant to help us to understand better the relationship between God and creation. And so, um, mm. a couple of episodes ago, I spent an hour or so. Um, attempting to justify the analogy and then walking through what I saw as some possible um, uh, applications, some really underdeveloped and inchoate uh, applications of the analogy. Uh, but nevertheless, areas where I think there may be some fruit to be born there. And then in last episode, I had my friend Braxton Hunter, who's also my boss at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. He is not a Calvinist, and we spent a lot of our time discussing um, how uh, this analogy might inform a discussion around uh, Calvinism and determinism, although we also covered such things as the incarnation and anthropological dualism versus physicalism, things like that. Um, so this is the discussion I want to continue with you for reasons that um, viewers will find out here in just a moment. Um, but to sort of get this topic started, how did you become first interested in this analogy of God as being like the author of a story such that it would 
consume as much of your thought as is necessary to write a thesis on it, as we'll be talking about shortly. Yeah, yeah. So I, I believe that I first came upon it uh, through the writings of C.S. Lewis. Uh, he's got, for, for those who don't know, he has just an amazing amount of essays. And I think his essays are probably the best. But there's an essay called The Seeing Eye. And he's he's writing against uh, when the when the Russians first went into space. And they go, one of them famously said, I see no God up here. And Lewis is writing against it. Like, if you could see God up there, then that would disprove the kind of God I believe in. What are you talking about? And so he, he ended up saying God relates to creation the way an author relates to a story. So it's no surprise that you wouldn't find him as some being up there behind the moon or something. Uh, and so once I first heard that, I was deep into apologetics and just kind of stuck in my mind. And then uh, I would listen to all sorts of Desiring God stuff. And Kevin Van Hooser was was there for a C.S. Lewis conference. And I believe he talked about the drama of doctrine, a uh, very famous uh, phrase by him. And he talked about God being relating to creation like a, in a drama or in a play and so that play motif was kind of in my mind as well and then just ruminating on it for a couple of years and seeing uh, there's a, a great book Calvinism and the Problem of Evil uh, philosophical theologians and philosophers talking about God and evil mm -hmm. and uh, several of them use that motif as well so just over the years been ruminating on it very cool um Having had the displeasure of watching one or both of those previous episodes I mentioned, um, do you share, just out of curiosity, my criticisms of the other analogies that I proposed people might uh, try, might, you know, uh, uh, conjure up in their minds when they're thinking about the relationship between God and creation? Things like a uh, puppet and a puppeteer or uh, an, a painting and its artist or, or even something like the creator of the world of World of Warcraft, you know, the, a multi, yeah. massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Um, and I walked through why I think there are deficiencies in each of these analogies that aren't equally suffered by the God as author analogy. And so um, do you agree with me at, uh, on at least on most of my criticisms of those analogies? And would you agree that at least some form of the God as author analogy succeeds in ways that those other ones don't? Yeah, I, I actually do. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that. And I think uh, while some of those might be helpful um, at, at various times, I think they fall apart uh, more quickly. People always say, you know, every analogy breaks down. I, I actually think a certain analogy for, for the uh, God-world relation, the God-is-author motif, I think a, a particular one of those doesn't break down. Um, and, and we can well, that's what we'll be talking about tonight. But um, I think that it actually picks out one of the uh, essential, essential things that God wants to reveal to us, uh, namely that he's, he's a, a speaker. God speaks. First thing we hear about him, he says, let there be light, right? He's a creator, but he creates by his word. And, and other analogies don't pick that out as well. I actually wrote another paper for uh, Dr. Van Hooser this last semester, this, this semester just now, uh, the authorial analogy versus the simulation hypothesis. So I was really interested to hear your, your last conversation there with Braxton. Mm -hmm. Um, if you were to take it, uh, so the problem with that analogy, there's lots of them, I think, uh, the, the problem is when you use that univocally, when you say like, we are literally living in a computer simulation, I think there's all sorts of problems with cognition then, and it's kind of self-defeating. Uh, Braxton took it more as an analogy. I think it's actually, uh, best if you're going to use it theologically as a metaphor, something that, uh, is not literally true, but, uh, in metaphorical language is kind of a intuition pump to think about it, mm. to think about God. But I, I think it breaks down precisely for what uh, for what you were saying that it it's not picking out essentially what we want that God speaks God doesn't God's not a programmer we might think of him as if you know we might make a simile we might make a metaphor that God is like you can think of him that way 
But I want to say God is literally an author. God literally creates with words in the same manner, um, in a similar manner that uh, we do. It's it's analogical. It's not univocal. God's not in Starbucks writing with a pen and paper or you know clicking away on his computer. But he literally creates with words, and we literally create create with words. So that's why I think the analogy and the authorial analogy is more apt. It's 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 better. It's a better uh, explanation for God's relation to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you did a great job on that. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. One thing I think you've done a great job with uh, or on is is your master's thesis, which I've had the pleasure of reading at least sort of a uh, yet un you know untouched up uh, version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the title of it, at least at the time that you gave me a copy of it, was "Contending with the Divine Writer's Block: Van Hooser's Analog- uh, Analogia Actoris uh, or Author." analogy and the problem of mm-hmm. authoring evil um, so this is a thesis you've done to, uh, to complete I'm assuming your master of arts in systematic theology at Ted's um, mm-hmm. tell us you know you already talked about how you became interested in the analogy in the first place how, what took it from that level to oh I want to do all of the work that goes into writing a master's thesis on it yeah so um, like I said earlier I want to go into philosophy and um, Maybe, dude, I don't know. I don't. The Lord could do whatever he wants. But uh, eventually, it would be kind of cool to come back into, into theology. But that's going to be a long time from now. So I figured while I'm here, let's try and just suck as much uh, out of this, this time at TED's as I can. And so I decided to add another master's, systematic theology. And I, I found out that you could write a thesis for it. And most people write two short papers, two 30-page papers. And uh, people were warning me, you know, it's a lot of work, but I I wanted to do the work. I wanted to have a defense. I wanted to put an idea out there and I want to advance something. And and something that's that's a little discouraging about Van Hooser's uh, students, uh, many of whom I know and I love them, his his PhD students, I haven't seen a ton of them advance his work. And that's a shame because in my mind, he's the best systematic theologian that's alive right now. And so... It's hard to advance his work because he's so witty and he does so many different things. That's it's hard. It's almost sad to abstract out what he's saying from all the puns that he does. <laughs> uh, so there's there's that. But he's also it's just tough. It's tough to advance his stuff because it's so Van Hooserin. So I wanted to do that as well. I wanted to say, you know, what's what can I do to help this analogy forward? Um, and I love philosophy, so maybe I can drag some philosophy into this and and um, re. Uh, not reinvent, but re-explain, repristinate his idea in philosophical thought. And so um, that's what I did. And, and I asked him about it. I wanted to work on God and time. Mm-hmm. And he said, eh, it doesn't matter because as soon as you do that, someone's going to raise the problem of evil. So you need to work on the problem of evil. And it just so happened that he had, he'd wanted some work done on that anyway. So it worked out really well. And I, I had just uh, recently taken a course on uh, an upper level course on the problem of evil from Dr. Feinberg. So yeah, it was all fresh in my mind, and it kind of fell together. Awesome. And if I'm not mistaken, in fact, I know I'm not mistaken because I saw you post about this on Facebook not long ago, <laughs> uh, but it was just a few hours ago that you defended your thesis, uh, and from what I can tell, successfully. Um, How did your mm-hmm. defense go, if you could tell us anything specific, and, and, and was Van Hooser there? And if so, what did he think? Yeah, yeah. So so Van Hooser was my first reader. Um so when you're you're defending a thesis, uh, you don't have chairs. It's like this. It's like a mini uh, doctoral dis- dissertation, uh, probably like a, like a hundred pages less or something like that. So mine mine was uh, 115 pages. So I had a first reader and a second reader, and Dr. Feinberg was my second. Dr. Van Hooser my first. And uh, it, we started off, you know, master's thesis, not a PhD. It's not that big of a deal. It's you know, and uh, they both were very flattering, very um, 
encouraging. It was huge. But then we we kind of went to war. We did some battle here. They they took me up uh, hard on the uh, my 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 notion of analogy. What I'm what I'm stipulating as what I'm saying uh, an analogy is, um, because Dr. Van Hooser took a class at Cambridge called metaphor and analogy. And so this dude has got, you know, deep, deep study in these particular terms. And then Dr. Feinberg has done, uh, he did a PhD in philosophy at University of Chicago, and his dissertation was on the problem of evil. Hmm. And so uh, two things that these guys uh, really uh, have strong opinions on and are really well versed in. And so, yeah, it ended up, it was supposed to go like uh, under an hour, ended up going an hour 45, because we were just going back and forth. And I'd been thinking about this for I don't know, seven years or something. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wouldn't want to back down. They didn't want to back down. And it was really fun. It was really encouraging uh, that they would take it seriously enough to come at me. Yeah. And uh, I was so so exhausted afterwards. <laughs> but uh, that, it was good. It was really, it helped me out a lot. And uh, I ended up, um, they, I only need, I need to add two sentences and correct uh, a couple typos and then I'm, I'm set. Awesome. So yeah, I passed, which was great. Yeah, congratulations. That's really cool. I, I really wanted Thanks. to do a master's thesis at Fuller, but they're not doing master's theses anymore. So that was a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Um, now let's start to dive into your thesis then and, and go through it chapter by chapter. And you mentioned something that'll be a nice uh, segue into it because you said that um, one of the things that Van Hooser in particular pushed back on you on was the distinction between analogy and metaphor. And that's a distinction that you work out in the first chapter of your thesis and, and also in this chapter, um, you defend the use of analogies to help understand the relationship between God and creation. So um, to get the ball rolling, summarize for us some of the major points that you make in this first chapter. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I want to make a distinction. In, in saying analogy or something is analogous, uh, I, there's, there's a lot of things that are close to that. There's similes, there's metaphors, um, there's allegories. There's there's all different ways and conceptual tools we can use for comparing two things. And so I wanted to say, well, what is an analogy? So I go through and uh, give some some different types of analogies. There's uh, explanatory analogies, and uh, there's there's all sorts. Uh, we don't have to get into all that again because this could take up everything. That's another warning that that Dr. Van Hooser said. But uh, it's important to to define our terms. That's something that that philosopher a good philosopher does, and I want to be a good philosopher. So. Uh, I went through and I, I said, what kind of analogy is being used when we compare God to an author? And I came down saying that it's an explanatory analogy. We're trying to explain something that's less known by something that's more fully known. And so, you know, theologically, you might take issue with that and say, well, God is fully known uh, to us because we're made in his image. And it's like, well, we do suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And the doctrine of incomprehensibility uh, is at play as well. Like, we, we can know God truly, but we don't know God fully. And um, if we can use a concept that we have a better grasp on to help us understand God, then that's a really good thing. And so that's the type of analogy. I, I call it a, an explanatory analogy. And I've, I've picked that up from a, a couple of logicians, logicians uh, people who, who teach and study logic, uh, but, but mostly from Irving Kopey. Uh, he, he really helped me out with that one. Um, so it's an explanatory analogy. It's not a descriptive analogy. We're not just describing. We're, we're using it to argue. We're using it to further elucidate, to, to breed some more understanding. Mm. So an explanatory analogy, but it's also a strong analogy. And here's I make a distinction, uh, which, again, I picked up from, from some philosophers, uh, Beghini and Fossil in their uh, Philosopher's Toolkit, which is a great book. They, they describe two different types of analogies, a strong analogy and a weak analogy. And a strong analogy... Um, analogy is strong 
When the things being compared, one, they share a decisive number of relevant similarities, and then two, they do not exhibit a large or decisive number of relevant differences. Mm. So then a weak analogy is the opposite. It's an analogy uh, that does not share a large number of, of relevant similarities and does exhibit a lot of disanalogy, relevant uh, dissimilarities, differences. And this and this wouldn't be a, um, a, a binary category as much as something like a spectrum from weak to strong, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, yeah, some are going to exhibit more or less similarities and, and uh, more immediate disanalogies. Um, so so that's a, another important conception. I think that the authorial analogy is a is a strong, strong analogy. Like it's, it's further along on that spectrum, closer to the strong end, because I, I argue that there are and, and Dr. Van Hooser argues as well. That there's a lot of relevant similarities and not a lot of relevant disanalogies, dissimilarities when you're comparing God to an author. Yeah. And I think that, again, we want to ground this all in Scripture as well. It's not just you're not sitting in our armchairs. We're trying to say, how do we make sense of the biblical phenomena here? Oh, yeah, it, it, it's a strong analogy. Um, and here's where they did they did push back. And this was helpful. Uh, as, soon as, as soon as I was done writing, I picked up uh, another book that I had used. Uh, it's called Metaphor, and it's by uh, Eva Fetter Kitty. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's a great book. It's an Oxford book. But she talked about how all metaphors are analogies, but not all analogies are metaphors. And this is something that kind of hit me on. They said, well, can you just explain the difference between an, uh, be- between that relation? You know, there's it's it's asymmetrical. Mm. And that was something I, I should have I should have touched on. Um, so, yeah, I'll be adding just a, a sentence on that. But um, so for an, for a metaphor to be a good metaphor, there has to be an analogy in there. Mm. But this is why a strong and weak analogy is important. Metaphors are weak analogies. They may have one thing that's uh, that's um, common between the two things being compared. So you say like um, some this this dude's like a fox, man. He, that, that guy's a real fox. What what are you saying there? Maybe you're saying that he's crafty, right? And so that's the one thing. But does he have orange fur on his face, right? No. There's a lot of disanalogies. There's a lot of dissimilarities. So I would say that's a metaphor. And it's literally false. Like if you take that, he's not actually a fox. But when you think about it in a metaphorical sense, oh, that makes sense. It helps me understand a little bit more about how you're describing him. Mm. So so that's why I, I would make that distinction. I think strong and weak is, is helpful for us when, it, uh, when thinking through analogies. So at this point, we have a strong explanatory analogy. That's, that's the type of analogy that we're working with when we say God is an author. Yeah. You know, one of the... Um if not only uh, major difference, uh, arguably, between the way the relationship between God and creation really is and the relationship between the author and the story. Um, one of the major differences people are going to allege, in fact, this came up a number of times in my discussion with Braxton, is that um, the, the world created by an author in his or her mind, uh, those, those the characters in that story aren't real. And I grant that, but... Um, what would it mean for human beings and, and the rest of the cosmos to be real um, to a God who transcends that created order? Um, I don't even know if we can conceive of what that would be like, and would it be significantly unlike the way in which world is real in the mind of its author, you know, real to its author? This isn't a question I, I sent you in advance, but it just occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how, To what extent do you think that that's a legitimate um a, a legitimate claim of disanalogy between the author and story analogy compared to the God creation relation. 
Yeah, and that's one of the first ones that comes up all the time. I've talked with some of my philosopher friends about this work, and they go, yeah, okay, you know, maybe it can work. But but there's this immediate disanalogy because those characters aren't real. And so uh, what I would say there is that in analogical predication, making a predication that's analogous, um, that, that's using an analogy that's analogical, not univocal, not in the exact same sense, and not equivocal in different senses, which is a fallacy, but in using one that's analogical, we're stretching the conception in order to fit both the things we're talking about. And so um, uh, uh, Kitty uses uh, this guy, James F. Ross, uh, um, his terminology. He talks about analogical shifts in meaning. So then there's there's three uh, these three instances of she dropped her paint can, that's one. She dropped her hem, that's two. And she dropped her stitch. And each one of those is literally talking about dropped is being used literally but the semantic range is, is being stretched to fit all of those mm -hmm. so you can literally speak you can literally predicate um about a can and a hem and a stitch and, and use drop to do that and so what i would say here is that we create with pen and paper we create you know w when we author things we create with pen and paper we create with our imaginations um I don't want to go into possible world semantics. Some some people would say that like Bilbo Baggins actually exists in a possible world, just not this one, <laughs> or he exists in our minds, right? Um, we create with our imaginations. God creates with time and space. Mm -hmm. um, so God is an author, but his medium is time and space. Uh, but we're sub-authors. And so if you want to be like technical about it, I would say no one actually authors anything except for God. He authors ex nihilo. But we're sub-authors. Mm -hmm. We use all the stuff that he's already authored, uh, Tolkien says this. He says that we're sub-creators. And so I just turn that into authorship because how does God create? Well, he speaks. How does an author create? Well, he or she writes and, or speaks, right? And uses words to create worlds. Mm. So um, I think that disanalogy is important because we don't want to project onto God. But I think when rightly understood and looking from script, the, the scriptural phenom phenomena, God is rightly seen as the original author. We author because he authored first. Mm. We are sub-authors, and insofar as someone's a good author, they're representing God well. Mm. That's awesome. They're, they're showing God's creativity. They're showing uh, a consistent worldview, or a consistent world in their in their novel, in their story. I, I don't know that any of us can actually get a fully consistent mm. one, um, but but as, as we approach that, yeah, we're representing God well. We're being a good image bearer yeah. of God. And so, yeah, I would, I would say that um, Francis Schaeffer talks a little bit about that, about God creating with time and space. And I think, yeah, that's, that's great. So there is this analogy, but we'd expect that because I'm not God. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I, I'm glad to hear you say what you said a moment ago, though, because for some time I've wondered if I could think of a, of an activity in which humans could take part that is a that is more analogous to <laughs> what it is to be God than authoring a story. And I'm not sure that there yeah. is one. Um, so that's, that's interesting. But uh, another thought yeah. that occurred to me that I wanted to ask you about, even though I didn't uh, mention it in advance is that, um, you know, you've, you've talked a couple of times already about the, author story relation in terms of words and pens and papers and of course you don't mean those literally but nevertheless it does seem as if the analogy that you're um talking about is the actual process of creating the world um of the story in the authorship process but as you'll recall from my discussion with braxton and from the video before that when I'm thinking about the analogy, I'm talking about the world that exists, say, within Tolkien's mind um, mm -hmm. at some point after the writing, the writing process has taken place. And in fact, had he never actually put pen to paper, 
he could have still had this the Middle Earth and all of its um, peculiarities all in in place um, up until the moment he died without ever actually having written anything, without actually having having mm-hmm. uh, uh, penned a dialogue, for example. And so I'm just curious: Do you have any thoughts on on whether um, Maybe maybe it doesn't even matter the distinction that I'm trying to highlight here. But if it does, um, why might you think it does? And which of those two kinds of uh, which of those two uh, variants of the analogy do you think is the one that we're really trying to key in on here? Yeah, I think it does matter. And uh, this is something that Dr. Feinberg uh, brought up today. I hope he's cool with me saying this. I, th- I think he will be. But um, he he has done a lot of work on the divine decree, and some people will get confused and say the divine. Could, the divine decree acts like an agent. It's like this other thing outside of God. And no, it's not. It's it's. Uh, Dr. Feinberg talks about uh, the divine decree as like a a blueprint. Uh, it's a blueprint for a uh, for an, a building. He's an architect, whatever. Uh, so this is another analogy, and we can debate on how strong it is or not. But um, so so I like that. I think that um, the story in God's mind is like the divine decree. God has eternally conceived of it, right? But I don't. I don't want to say God is eternally creating. Um, so I want to say that that there was a point where God um, created Ted, but it wasn't like a, a brand new story that he thought of. So I would say that the the divine decree is the, the God's conception of the story in his mind, and then he spoke that being uh, he spoke existence into being. He's God said and it was. God breathed. Uh, Psalms talks about God breathing out the stars. Uh, and it's really this poetic language. Talk, he said, and there were stars. God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And so, um, I wanna, I wanna say that he did speak out existence, speak um, because I wanna, I wanna affirm the creator-creature distinction. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried that if we just have it as a conception in the mind without the actual, uh, we would say writing or whatever. But but when it comes to God, he spoke it. And I wanna say that creation has its own separate existence. Uh, to kind of avoid some panentheism mm-hmm. concerns, that uh, we just exist in the mind of God, that reality is God, but God is more than reality, right? So um, I, I think it's important to say that the story of reality was in God's mind eternally, that he had that as a conception, but I do think it is, is also important that he, that Genesis 1 is right, yeah. that he spoke it, and that the world has its own existence, though it's not existent without him continually uh, pr- preserving yeah. creation. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit more work to do here then, because my my struggle with some of the conceptions that you're talking about is that, uh, well, there are a few things, I, a few concerns I have. Firstly, yes, in writing the story on paper or typing it out on a computer or whatever, the, the, the author is bringing the blueprint to life, as it were. But the process mm-hmm. of writing, which you've, you've sort of made analogous to... Uh, uh, God speaking into existence, you know, mm-hmm. God's words creating are at least ostensibly, according to Genesis, spoken in the the cosmos he's creating, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when God, when, when Adam hears the footsteps of God in the garden after he and Eve have sinned, um, he's not hearing the footsteps of God outside the story, right? He's hearing the footsteps of God mm-hmm. inside the story, the very yeah. inside of which uh, God's creative process takes place. And so that's one concern I have. And then the other concern I have is that if if the writing into existence is, uh, or if that's analogous to God's, the actual process of creating, then um, it seems as if the creating is happening while the writing is taking place like as the pen is moving across the page but the thing is 
um, there's nothing actually being created. I mean, what's actually being created in the analogy is a piece of paper with writing on it, right? Yeah. But and that's just a record of the world that the author has constructed. And so I have that concern as well. Mm-hmm. I'll let you have the final word on this before we move on to the next question I have for you. But um, but those are the some some things I'd like to see fleshed out a little bit more before I land too comfortably on one variant of the analogy or another. Yeah, no, I, I think those are good points. I think that's why it's it's important to have the divine decree, the story uh, being decreed. Especially this is why it's a, a Calvinistic analogy. It's not uh, it's not open. It's not an open universe. Uh, God's practicing meticulous providence, but in writing, uh, like you said, you're 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 creating a, a record of it. And so this is where we get to have fun with analogy and say, yeah, there is. Uh, it's not in the exact univocal sense, so we don't have to say that it is exactly. Uh, the same way that that this process is being fleshed out uh, in the in the same manner, exact same univocal fashion as when Tolkien writes or anything like that. So um, I would want to I would want to continue to preempt the uh, the panentheism that we or or idealism. Um, maybe maybe you're more comfortable with that. Uh, I think that with, is with, probably the direction I'm starting to incline, just as a result of thinking yeah. through God as author. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, and that clear, makes sense. Though, it, it sounds like it. For, so then, just for viewers' sake that might not be familiar with what you mean by idealism, we're not here talking about idealism as a hermeneutical approach to the book of Revelation. That's a different kind of idealism. Um, we're talking mm-hmm. about metaphysical idealism, that uh, that at the root of everything, at the foundation of everything is mind, and that whatever we call physical is, is sort of like an expression or manifestation of mind. Um, and... and uh, and and I am kind of inclined in that direction precisely because of the analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, but and so I don't know. I, I guess I guess do, do you, are there important and critical differences between idealism and uh, panentheism, or do you think that there's uh, a significant degree to which they overlap or something? Yeah, it depends on who you ask, right? Uh, so some there's all sorts of types of of idealism. There's personal idealism, absolute idealism. Um, uh, there's various forms of Christian idealism as well. Uh, there's different forms of panentheism. So someone out there is going to, if if I were to say, no, there's a pretty much uh, uh, the same thing, they would lose their minds. So yeah, there, there's significant differences. Some are, are closer to orthodoxy than others are, obviously, uh, absolutely, with, with most, most things. But um, yeah, yeah. So I would say that there's a difference there. What I'm, what I'm wanting to say is that I want to affirm that God had this plan from eternity past. But in speaking, he's actually giving it its own uh, unique existence, which he continues to uphold. So there's no universe out there without his preservation. He continues to do that, absolutely. And nothing that happens uh, in the the novel, we could call it the novel, the world, nothing is going to happen there that's different than the divine decree, his conception of the story in his mind. But I I do like that creator-creature distinction. Uh, I think that like you said, speaking into the void, sometimes we say creation out of nothing, but it, it might be more appropriately called creation into nothing, mm-hmm. right? So God's speaking into, right? So there's only existence where God has spoken. Um, but yeah, that it's an important point. And, and yeah, maybe we could we could ponder on that one some more and, and, and come back. But yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. And it makes sense that you would be tending more towards that direction. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, in any event, um, we'll keep moving forward then. And, you know, I, I first began thinking about 
the relationship between God and creation as something like the relationship between uh, the author of a story and his or her story several years ago in the context of the debate between theological determinists like me and my non-Calvinist uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, because it seemed to me and still seems to me to resolve many of the popular objections to theological determinism that, um, uh, and, and I'm saying that objections to theological determinism, they just say, uh, they very often will just say objections to determinism full stop, failing to make the distinction right. between causal or naturalistic determinism and theological one. But anyway, um, so so this was something I came up with on my own a few years ago, but as uh, I was delighted to see that this was not at all something new to me, that, that it was, you know, I wasn't the first one to come up with it. But nevertheless, prior to that point and since, I've rarely, if ever, heard that analogy used in any Christian circles. And so I, I guess I've had sort of the impression that this was um, uh, a, a fairly in, uh, unpopular analogy um, and that it hasn't been popular throughout church history. But in your second chapter, you you push back against that um, assessment. You argue that the analogy has, in fact, been fairly popular, if only in a nascent or inchoate form uh, up at least until the modern era. So, so explain that for us. And, and you know, what sorts of um, uh, nascent forms of this analogy do we see in church history? And, and why is it that further development of the analogy wasn't really possible until the modern era? Yeah, yeah. So uh, like you, I, I thought, well, and I raise this question in my thesis, too. I say, if this is such a good analogy, if this is such a good tool for thinking about God, why isn't it just so commonplace that uh, a master's thesis on it would be completely boring? Like, why why wouldn't this already be so ground, uh, you know, foundational in God talk? And so I, I want to look into that a little bit more, and I'm, I'm really indebted to uh, Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt. Um, where is he at? He's in Chicago here. I always forget the name of the school. Uh, I believe he's a Catholic theologian, but he talked about, uh, he had this great article, God is Author, and he, uh, I, I pull a lot from his work saying that this was uh, nascent, like you said, or, or inchoate, not not completed uh, throughout church history, and it's, we hear it in the, the book of nature. You hear this all the time in old school uh, theologians. We talk about God's two books, you know, the, the Bible and the book of nature, and that's another way of describing general revelation. And so I, it's like, I thought, why are people so cool talking about the book of nature, but not God as author then? It seems like an immediate just correlation. Just do that. Just say that if that's the book of nature, then God is the author of the book of nature. He's an author. That seems pretty logical. And so, <laughs> exactly, right. So Bauerschmidt says that it actually has to do with the conception of uh, literature, with the conception of the, the novel, and um, that conception of the novel influences our view of the author. And so he, he makes this argument that um, prior to the modern era, in, in the medieval period, in the early medieval period at least, when they first started having books, um, people would, uh, it was like copy and paste theology. You know, so Peter Lombard takes all his sentences and he's taking all these different pieces from different theologies and he's putting them together. And everyone doing their dissertation back in the day to become a doctor of theology would have to write a commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences. So that was the big figure. And other than like Augustine or a couple other really fantastic writers, uh, 
that it just wasn't that common. So Bauerschmidt argues that maybe if they would have started doing that back then, they would have think they would have thought of Aristotle's prime mover. Mm-hmm. That's someone who takes a pre-existing matter, right? For Aristotle, the universe is pre-existing and just kind of reforming things, the the unmoved mover. And so that actually would have been an inappropriate analogy for God. Mm-hmm. And so what we needed was a more modern conception of the novel, which came in the, in the modern era. And with that new conception, of uh, a fictional world that's uh, generally uh, systematic, that, that makes sense, that has a good storyline to it. With that came th- this idea of the author as a genius. Like, wow, that, that author is fantastic. What a, what a work of uh, ingenuity. What a genius that guy is. And so now in this modern era, we do have that in place. And we have lots of great uh, authors. We have lots of great systematic uh, novels which which draw you into a new world, uh, created world, but uh, uh, a new world. And so with these two conceptions now, we can make more sense of the um, the the book of nature being a novel mm. and the God being this creative genius author who penned the book of nature. Yeah. Fascinating. So then stuff. with that in mind, we, it would make sense that it wouldn't pop up for them. Yeah. 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 It, it would make sense that you would see creation likened unto a book but not necessarily the you know the the other side of the coin you know god compared yeah. to an author until the modern era that's that's helpful um now in this first chapter of your thesis in which you um or, or are we on to the second one now uh with second chapter so we're in your second chapter now and um uh in this chapter, you also offer a number of helpful ways, it's kind of similar, but much better than I did in my first episode in this series, ways in which the um, analogy can be really helpful for thinking through um, aspects of theology. And I think that many of those ways are um, ways in which the analogy can be seen as fruitful, even for non-Calvinists. You know, you, you said uh, a little bit ago that this is a Calvinist analogy, but um, but I think there's a lot of value to it, even putting the determinism um, debate aside. So could you talk through what some of those um, seem to you to be, some of these ways in which, you know, determinism aside, the analogy can bear a lot of fruit in theological thinking? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I did say this is a Calvinistic analogy, and, and that's particularly uh, the one that we'll, we'll be uh, expounding on more, that's uh, Kevin Van Hoosers. Um, I think generally it, it is more of a Calvinistic uh, analogy. However, you know, C.S. Lewis, not a Calvinist, um, and and he uses it really, really well. Um, so, and he's the one who first introduced me. So, uh, one is is creation out of nothing or or into nothing, right? We talked about this. So, um, I'll just read uh, C.S. Lewis in, in Out of the Silent Planet, the the first line of Out of the Silent Planet. The last drops of the thunder shower had hardly ceased falling when the pedestrian stuffed his map into his pocket, settled his pack more comfortably on his tired shoulders, and stepped out from the shelter of a large chestnut tree into the middle of the road. Okay, that's just the first sentence, but with that first sentence, C.S. Lewis created a world. Now there's a world. You got thunderstorms, you got drops of rain coming down, you got chestnut tree. C.S. Lewis spoke, and it was. You know, C.S. Lewis used words, and it was. So this is a, a helpful conception of, of thinking about the uh, the how God is related to creation. How is it that God created? Well, in Genesis 1, we see that God creates with his words. In John 1, we see that God created with the word, right? The, the second person of the Trinity. And so um, this is the the causal joint. Uh, I think it's setting up the causal joint for creation, for how it is that God interacts with creation. Mm. But initially, God created out of nothing or into nothing with words. Uh, and I think that was that's a really fun one. That's a really interesting one to think about. 
uh, instead of God building up with some kind of clay or some something that already pre-exists, that's not what we believe in. We don't believe in that. We believe that it came from God. Well, God's words come from his mind and he speaks out. Uh, another one uh, is incarnation. Yeah, this is a big uh, and, one for and, me. And you talked about this one. Yeah, this one's great. I love this one. Uh, C.S. Lewis notes this one. Dorothy Sayers um, notes this one as well. Um, Dorothy Sayers is interesting because she characterizes the whole novel of history as God's autobiography. And it sounds kind of weird at first because you're like, well, autobiography, you're talking about like his birth. Well, it actually does talk about the birth of the, the son of man. But that the whole story revolves around God as the main character mm -hmm. and God's interaction with God's people for God's purposes in order to reveal himself more fully to his people. And so uh, I think that one's really good. I think that it, the incarnation is huge because, uh, well, this one's really, really cool, actually. So God speaks. We already talked about that. God speaks into the world. But then when the creator steps into creation, now we can see... Uh, we, we have a model for the incarnation for how is it, how it is that Christ could be truly God and, and truly man. Uh, he's, he's bound within the creation as a man. He took on this new nature of being a character in the story. All the while, he's still God. So uh, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote himself into Out of the Silent Planet, spoiler alerts or whatever, at the end of the chapter, uh, he wrote himself in there, but he's sitting back at Oxford. But he's still in the story as well, yeah, because he's existing on two different levels of reality. And what he gives himself as he as he writes himself a character, if he gave himself a limp in the story, that character would have a limp, even if C.S. Lewis doesn't have a, a limp in real life. Right. So it's a really helpful conception of of a tricky doctrine that's that we have to affirm as Christians. But it's a, a really helpful conceptual tool of thinking literally about God, uh, in a way that that breeds a little bit more explanatory uh, understanding, which I think is great. So. Yeah, uh, John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. I think that's perfect. That sounds like an author entering his story. Mm -hmm. He's holding all this thing together, and yet here he is as a baby, uh, you know, uh, with Mary. It's amazing. It is. So there's another one. It, it yeah, is amazing, please. and I love – what I love is, is how well it captures what you talked about a little bit, which is how – it makes it possible for the incarnate author to genuinely be part of the creation within the creation. Uh, and so the analogy I gave um, in my discussion with Braxton, I think, was that, you know, uh, imagine an author in our world creating a world of two-dimensional creatures. You know, yeah. if the author becomes writes himself into the story as a two-dimensional figure, um, that doesn't change the fact that he's a three-dimensional human being outside of his world. Right. Um, and 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 this this can help us to answer what seem on the surface to be really challenging texts in scripture. So for example, when when Jesus says that um, nobody knows the day or hour of my return, not even the son, but only the father, um, we can um, obviously there's some trinitarian uh, issues in there that we would have to flesh out but but in terms of god knowing something outside of time but not knowing something inside of time where he's incarnated himself that seems eminently plausible if the relationship yeah. between god and creation is something like an author and a story so i i think it's a really great model for uh for capturing how the incarnation might work i mean i just just to continue to ramble a little bit um you might have you might be aware i don't know that, that i debated a, a somewhat well-known unitarian recently named dale tuggy he's a uh, mm. philosopher and, and so-called biblical unitarian and the the i think 
seemingly most powerful among his arguments, he really doesn't have any biblical ones, they're, they're almost exclusively philosophical or, or logical, um, are, are his arguments that you can't have a person like Christ who is both immortal as God and mortal as human. Those are, those are mutually exclusive traits. Yeah. But we can easily say that outside of the created order, God is immortal, and inside of the created order, he's mortal. There's no logical contradiction there because the two worlds are not, their, their times don't overlap. You know, at any yeah. given point within the story, if somebody, if you were to ask, well, what time is it in God's world? The answer is, it is no time in God's world. He's, he's outside of, you know, there is no one-to-one -one correlation between the times. And so, um, anyway, I'm, I'm sort of rambling here, but. No, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. well, so Gavin Ortland, uh, follows up on the same motif, uh, and, and wants to talk about the extra Calvinisticum, um, which shouldn't, should, probably shouldn't be called Calvinisticum, uh, because it, it predates Calvin, but that's that, that Christ, uh, is still fully God, yeah. still truly God outside of in, his incarnation, which, which naturally comes up in this, this talk of incarnation. And, and Ortland says this can really breed some unity between, well, the the modern the 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 more um, the old debate between Lutherans and, and Calvinists about Nestorianism and Eutychianism that we uh, the the Calvinists said the the Lutherans are Eutychians that they're blending Christ's nature his two natures together and the the Lutherans are saying you guys have such a separation between the two natures of of Christ that you're Nestorian and so they're they're throwing the heretical names at each mm -hmm. other and uh, yeah and and Gavin Ortland's an awesome guy and and he uses some retrieval theology uh, armed with what he calls it a, uh, a metaphor but uh, said he'd, he'd be willing to uh, accept it as an analogy mm. and uh, uses Tolkien and Middle Earth to, to, to do exactly what we've just been talking about that uh, the, the full yeah Christ can enter into the story as a, a human while still being God yeah and it's it's awesome it's amazing it is and awesome. I think that really yeah yeah it really makes sense of the world the world being a novel and and uh, going back to Dorothy Sayers, that Christ was the whole goal of the whole story. Right. That it all was meant to culminate in Christ reveal, fully revealing himself, the author, to us. Right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very beautiful and it's very compelling and and, and I love that um, it enables us to affirm the genuine um, and limited humanity of Jesus, yeah. while at the same time not having to resort to something like kenosis to explain. You know, we don't have to say that somehow the divine nature lost its divine attributes or something like that, which is incoherent right. to begin with. But rather, uh, he's fully divine outside of his created order and inside he's fully human. I think it's pretty profound. Um, but as we both have sort of intimated and explicitly said, this is, um, at least in the context of your thesis, a Calvinistic analogy. So how, beyond the areas that you've just mentioned, uh, that we've just been discussing, how can this analogy help us uniquely as determinists to think about how God determines events in time without not directly causing them? Yeah, and, and so um, uh, for the, the Calvinists out there who have read like Wayne Grudem or, uh, or John Frame's Systematic Theologies, I would say these two are, are, are the biggest proponents of this. It, even then, though, it's only a couple pages devoted to it. But they talk about uh, Shakespeare and Hamlet and, and the two different levels of reality. So I actually like sticking with, with Tolkien because, uh, I don't know, I like Tolkien. So when you look at uh, Smeagol, you know, Smeagol becomes Gollum. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, Smeagol was jealous of his cousin finding this ring and... In his heart, he started welling up uh, jealousy and anger and rage and 
turned into homicidal rage and he killed his cousin. And then from there, he was driven out from the the townspeople into the hills and then with the ring poisoning his mind. All these all these things make sense within the story. But at another level, you could say, well, Tolkien made that happen. Why did Smeagol become Golem? Because Tolkien wanted that to happen. Well, Tolkien's a real jerk then, dude. Let's go arrest him for all the murders that Smeagol uh, performed. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you do that? It's a different level of reality, and it doesn't make sense to hold the author responsible for what his character did intra-narratively within the story. So there's two different levels of reality at play, and there we get to have uh, the beginnings of a, of a good analogy for thinking through God's sovereignty and human freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, God's, God's uh, concurrence, uh, a form of uh, or one of the three aspects of his providence, uh, his concurrence is working along with the uh, intentions and actions of his creatures to bring things about. And yet God not being morally culpable for the sins of his creatures. And that's a really important distinction that we need to make that most uh, many non-Calvinists want to pin us on mm-hmm. and say, well, if if you're right, if there's theological determinism, then God, you're excusing sinners and blaming God. You know, that's what, what Guillaume Bignon's book's all about. And he, he nailed it because that's the objection always. Yep. You... I, you can't be held responsible for your sin. God made you. Or I, and the, what they're doing now is, uh, I can't help being an Arminian. God made me this way. God, they love that one. It, like it's just this knockdown argument against us. Yeah. It's really annoying. I hear it all the time. And there's some people in right. particular who seem to drop it into every single conversation. And yep. it's frustrating beyond belief. But um, this, this really gets to that distinction I mentioned earlier between theological determinism on the one hand and naturalistic or causal determinism on the other. And so often when I say, look, theolo- theological determinism is not, or theistic determinism is not the same thing as causal determinism. It is possible for a theistic determinist to also be a causal causal determinist, but they're not one and the same. Um, so when people think about causal determinism, I think what they think of is something like a series of dominoes, right? So yeah. um, God tips over the first domino but then from then on every single domino falls simply because the domino preceding it tipped it over Um, and naturalistic determinism causal determinism is very much like this in the sense that um, no matter you know every decision a person makes is itself the effect of a cause that preceded it in time Um, and and very often our critics will liken God in uh, in Calvinism to like a puppeteer or the programmer of a robot because uh, a puppet's arm doesn't uh, simply moves because the puppeteer pulls the string and the robot acts simply because it's been programmed to do so. Um, but what you've just said is that in 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 this kind of relationship, the relationship between an author and a story, yes, it's true that there is a sense, and we'll get to distinctions uh, between kinds of causations a little bit later, there is a sense in which God causes the, the characters to do what they do in the sense that he has predetermined it, foreordained it, but that decision doesn't arise solely in God and then carry out, isn't carried out mechanistically in time, resulting in the yeah. action, right? The, the, the decision to do something is also simultaneously, to the extent that we can use the word simultaneously when we're crossing worlds like this, <laughs> yep. um, simultaneously it arises within the will of the character. Yes, it's been determined, but it's not just a domino falling. There's you know, right. there's no series of causes and effects that you could identify that irresistibly leads the character to do what they do, and yet they are irresistibly doing what they do uh, by virtue yep. of God's predetermining it. So. Um, so I think that's really powerful, but, and here's where I want to start to get into the third chapter of your thesis, um, 
you argue that even though there is this difference um, between how God might predetermine things if he's like the author of a story versus um, how a puppeteer moves around a puppet, nevertheless, you do contend in this third chapter that there are only some models of authorship as an analogy that are consistent with creaturely freedom and responsibility. Um, and so mm-hmm. in this third chapter, this is this is going to be fascinating. I, I'm not sure I could fully grasp it when I was reading it, so I'm hoping you can help uh, mm-hmm. help me to understand this after I finish the question, which is proving to be very lengthy. But you, you look mm-hmm. in this third chapter at two competing models of authorship and their strengths and weaknesses. One of them you call uh, monologism or, or monologism. I don't know how you would pronounce that right. And the other is polyphonic dialogism. And you represent these two competing models using the authors Leo Tolstoy and Fyodor Dostoevsky, um, respectively. So before we start to talk about the strengths and weaknesses of these um, in, in their ability to preserve the uh, freedom and responsibility of creatures. Um, tell us what these two models of authorship are. What makes them different from one another? And why do those authors, uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, why do they illustrate these models well? Yeah, yeah. And so um, uh, I don't want to give the impression that these are mine. So I, I'm pulling these from uh, Dr. Van Hooser's book, uh, Remythologizing Theology. Uh, and so this is the part of, of my uh, master's thesis where I'm trying to represent his view in order to advance it further, but uh, I'm trying to get it right. And, and he said I did, so that was great. So he's pulling from Mikhail uh, Bakhtin, 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 uh, who is uh, wrestling with Dostoevsky's uh, poetics and trying to, trying to understand uh, Dostoevsky as an author. And so he puts him in conversation with Tolstoy, so two Russian authors, and he makes this distinction between uh, monolo- monologism or monologism, uh, one logos, right? One voice, one word, one thing coming through. And uh, polyphony, polyphony, poly, many, uh, phony uh, and noise, right? So, so you have polyphony and you have monologic. And so in a monological authorship uh, situation like Tolstoy, who's a very strong author who has a point to make, and he's going to do it through his characters. And so uh, what Van Hooser does in following Bakhtin is he says, well, well, Tolstoy's characters are a little bit one-dimensional. And that's not to say anything against him as an author. He's a great author. But he's very domineering over his characters. And he's so sovereign that they don't come off the page. They don't have their own personality they don't have their own uh they don't have a will of their own so to speak which makes them almost a little unbelievable right there you you can't really relate because there doesn't seem to be a connection between the characters uh well the character's character and the actions of the character it just seems like it's tolstoy coming through is that what you're saying it's tolstoy exactly exactly it's tolstoy coming through and and maybe it's still great because tolstoy is a good author but it's Tolstoy. It's Tolstoy behind this character's mask and now behind this one. And, and there's there's no character of their own there. And so that's uh, that's what they, they distinguish as uh, monolog- monologism. One word, one voice, one speech. Okay, so then we have uh, a polyphony. We have polyphonic authorship. Polyphonic authorship. And a van- here's where, where Van Hooser says there's multiple interpretations of Bakhtin. There's a left wing, which is a radical polyphony. And this is that... There's so many voices going on. The author has lowered himself into the story so much that he doesn't have sovereign control anymore. And you get this a c- cacophony of voices. You don't have one major one coming through. The author is no longer sovereign over his story. And it's a big mess. Um, and this might be like, if we're going to relate it back to theology, this might be like process uh, theism. 
that, that God has entered in and um, he has emptied himself. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, he's, he's, he's emptied himself so much to no longer really be sovereign God any longer. Yeah. Uh, and, and then there's uh, dialogical um, authorship, dialogical polyphonic authorship. And I know you guys, it's, it's crazy language. <laughs> It, this is this is more continental philosophy. So anyone interested in philosophy knows there's this divide between analytic, which is rigorous logic, and uh, continental, which is more flowery language. It's still good, even though it's continental. Um, but so dialogic polyphonic uh, authorship is a right-wing interpretation. It's more conservative interpretation of Bakhtin's analysis of Dostoevsky. But um, in dialogical polyphonic authorship, the author has genuine relation with his character. His characters actually have a character of their own, but the author remains sovereign even while he's not bulldozing over and forcing his will on his uh, characters. Mm -hmm. And so here we see uh, dialogues, right? So we see Plato's dialogues. Each one of the characters represents a different idea. And so they come to life. It's not just Plato hiding behind there. You don't get that sense when you're reading it. No, this guy actually has an opinion. And Euthyphro is Euthyphro. Like, I know Euthyphro. I've read that story again and again. Uh, he's different than Socrates. And it's not just this game of, of hiding behind. No, because they represent um, what Bakhtin calls voice ideas, because they represent these ideas, they have genuine um, a genuine will of their own. They have a genuine existence. Because it's an, it's an idea. There's combating ideas going on. And so... In, in relating God to an author, I think this is the best model, and, and so does Van Hooser. I think that because of, of Van Hooser, but uh, in weighing the options, I think this is the best one as well because it, it shows that we are like these voice ideas. We represent ideas, and we interact with each other through dialogue, and God created the universe through dial or through speech, and then he consummates our, our personalities and our relationship with him through speech through his innovated word, right? Through the Bible, through the call uh, and internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit testifying to our spirits that we are children of God, divine illumination, he's opening up our minds, and persuasion. He uses you, he uses me, he uses different people in our lives with different messages to form our character and form our being. And so I think that that middle one of dialogical authorship, that the author has entered into his story and he's dialoguing with genuine agents, he's still bringing about his will, but he's doing it through their own capacities, yeah. through their own minds. He's reasoning with them. He's illuminating them. He's not forcing his will on them. And I think if he were to do that, yeah, that, that would mess with your freedom. I don't I don't think you'd be morally culpable if he, if, if it was a Tolstoyan uh, reality, I don't think we would be morally responsible. Yeah. So I think that's that's one that we shouldn't use, that, that type of authorship. So yeah. we might say that like on one end of a spectrum, we've got something like a Tolstoy who has mm -hmm. com, uh, so much sovereignty that there is no realistic characters in the story that are relatable and seem to have a character of their own. And then at the other spectrum, you might have something like a Stephen King maybe, because from what I understand, mm -hmm. Stephen King claims that he more like observes the story as it comes to light before him and then he just records it um and that's so, great and so, yeah. so there the, the the author doesn't really have any sovereignty he's just recording mm -hmm. what he sees we want something somewhere in between those extremes where you've got the sovereignty that, that there is no action that takes place that isn't outside of the predetermining will of the author but at the same time um they are genuine characters that that um yeah. seem to have characters and lives of their own 
Um, mm-hmm. And by the way, one thing I love that just occurred to me. In fact, I think you might have mentioned this in the in the thesis. You have to tell me if I'm wrong. But um, I like how this uh, helps also to. Um, to understand the difference between miracles and, and just the way things normally operate. Yeah. Because we might think of a miracle in, insofar as it's like a violation of the natural laws of physics or whatever, as something like a deus ex machina, right? Where yeah. uh, where there needs to be a solution to a problem and it just, boom, it happens in the story and there's no real logical, you know, um, nothing logical leads to it. It just happens. Well, that's kind of like God parting the Red Sea through Moses, you know, or, or, or something mm. along those lines. Um, the resurrection, right? There was of Christ. There was, there wasn't anything in the laws of physics that, um, uh, nothing in the, in the, in the coherent story of the world that led to the resurrection of Christ. That was God. That was God's deus ex machina, right? Just resurrecting mm. Christ, uh, supernaturally miraculously and so i think that's pretty cool um yeah well can i can i can i address that real real quick so so the usually we don't like we don't want to say deus ex machina because we want to say that that's what happens with bad authors right bad authors have to concoct but god's a great author he doesn't have to do that but on on a dialogical view of authorship god is a character in the story as well not just in jesus christ but we see god uh speaking out of a bush right you know we we see god but most of the times, God is still using language to do that. And when when these miracles occur, it's as if he's giving the authorship authority to his other characters. So Moses has the authority to part the Red Sea. Moses has the... Uh, um, Jesus calms the storm by his words, right? So he, he says, be still, and the whole storm is, is still. So it's not in every single case that this is happening. But it's it's interesting that a lot of these miracles are happening through through words mm-hmm. it's like the the little uh in the sims that little thing that, that goes over your head <laughs> yeah. right so now you you have the the power of the author right god is granting you that uh your words to actually do things uh van Hooser would say our words always do things but to, to to do miraculous things uh metaphysical things which is really interesting so uh the, the deus ex machina that you're talking about is a good thing but we would still say that's that's been part of the ordained plan as well and it makes yeah. sense within the story even if it doesn't make sense within the laws of physics of the story yes no and that's yeah. a really good point and i also like how you brought out that when we talk about god as author we're not talking about him solely uh, and when we talk about him writing himself into the story we're not solely talking about incarnation we're talking right. about also theophany right and, and just the the yep. in time operation of god in time it's just that that's mm-hmm. not where he um, naturally exists. He exists outside of the story, you know, where he's written the story. Um, but nevertheless, he's active. I mean, like I said a moment ago, he's, he's his footsteps are heard by Adam in the garden. Um, right. But yeah, that, that was helpful. Okay, so, so then with that contrast in mind um, between sort of the monolo- monolo- <laughs> monologic Sorry. authorship uh, versus the polyphonic dialogic one, um, where does the monologic authorship falter and where does the polyphonic dialogism succeed when it comes to uh, creaturely freedom and moral responsibility? And we've kind of already sort of hinted at that a little bit, but yeah, unpack that for us. Yeah, and and here's also uh, another reason to be careful about deus ex machina. So uh, if if God were to drop an idea into your head and it doesn't, uh, in, in, in free will literature, it's called uh, historicism or the historical condition for moral responsibility, if it doesn't make sense with your history, then like in what sense is it really yours? If God's just dropping in here by divine intervention instead of interjection, instead of interjecting with a word in order to convince you and use your uh, your your mechan- the, the God-given mechanisms 
of your rational capacities, if you were to just plant one in there, it seems like that would kind of mess with your moral responsibility. And so in a, in a monological authorship model, well, first, we already talked about how it's really hard to get off the ground and have characters at all. But if God is just just running roughshod over you, giving you these ideas, it seems like those are God's ideas. And I think that if that's the case, then God might be morally responsible for all the things you do because he's giving you these ideas by through bypassing your rational capacities. So th- I don't I don't think that's actually really like your idea on on dialogical what well, you can call it uh, Van Hooser calls it dialogical determinism. God has already determined that I will do A B and C. But the mechanism by which he's determined it is different than the monological. In this one God is getting me to do that not through manipulation but through persuasion. So if it's a good thing we would want to attribute that to God. I do believe there's asymmetry because God can't tempt someone with evil. Neither is he tempted by evil. But uh, he can use secondary agents like the devil who who can dialogue with me, who can you know whisper in my, my ear, who can tempt me with different things and give me a reason ad, uh, intranarratively within the story, uh, mundane, intramundane reasons, uh, as philosophers say, to do these things. So if... if Somehow my capacities are bypassed. I would say I'm not morally responsible for that. But if my capacities are used and I'm reasoning and I get a reason to do this and I want to do it and I act on that, even if I'm moral, even if I'm determined to do that, I'm still morally responsible for doing that. And uh, yeah, we could talk about uh, different Gettier, um, not Gettier, that's epistemology, um, Frankfurt cases and stuff like that. If we if we wanted to talk about moral responsibility, even with determinism, um, but this model is awesome because it provides a way for us to be determined, but determined through rational processes, which make our reasons our own, even if they're evil reasons. Uh, there's an asymmetry again between God's not giving you evil reasons. He's not, but he does use secondary means or he allows you to do uh, the, the evil that you want, or he uh, confronts you with his goodness. And in your hardened, in your natural, natural, right? But uh, in your sinful desires, I would say it's not natural, but we're born with uh, sinful desires. But it wasn't originally like that, right? So that's why I want to say sure. it's unnatural. Um, so I'm born with these these sinful desires. God doesn't have to illuminate me. He doesn't have to do that. But in pre- presenting his goodness to me, like he did to Pharaoh, in presenting mercy to him, hey, look, the frog God's not God. The river God's not God. In continually mercifully showing that he's God and they're not, he's actually hardening Pharaoh's heart. Because each time Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. And each time he's being more and more consummated in his hard-heartedness. Mm-hmm. He's, God's continually hardening even through this process of showing him mercy. I see. Yeah, yeah that's that's really good. So then when, um, you know, we, we, would, we could say that to the extent that Middle Earth is analogous to Earth um, and the cosmos that contains it, uh, Saruman isn't you know Tolkien doesn't like drop a, a suddenly drop a thought for out for, from out of the blue into Saruman's mind to create the Urukai, right? So right. Saruman has a whole bunch of reasons that are consistent with his right. desires and his motivations and everything for creating the Urukai, and so it's we can speak of it as being his uh, his decision, although it is also equally God's decision, or sorry, the uh, Tolkien's decision, having written him to write it that way. So I, I think that that's helpful. 
Um, that brings us then to chapter four of your thesis. Uh, and here I want to go back to Guillaume Bignon, who we've mentioned a couple of times and who has mentioned a few times in your thesis. Um, you've already mentioned the name of the book that he's got published that I'm a big fan of called Excusing Sinners and Blaming God. Um, that title captures um, two categories of, of objections that we as Calvinists often face. Um, and the phrase excusing sinners is largely the one that we've been talking about so far. It, it captures the objection that if the actions of human beings are predetermined, then they can't be held morally accountable. And we've discussed how a, a robust authorship model might answer that. But the other phrase within that title, blaming God, captures a different objection, namely that if the actions of human beings are predetermined by God, then even if we could say that those uh, that, that sinners are responsible for their sins, nevertheless, equally, we could blame God for evil, having been the one to write it. In fact, um, the God as author analogy might seem to exacerbate this challenge rather than seem to alleviate it, because the, the objection is often uh, offered in terms like determinism makes God out to be the author of evil. And of course, here we are talking about God as an author. Now, this is mm -hmm. so this is the objection that you tackle in chapter four. And, and to get us started with this, uh, the response to this, um, Tackling the challenge, as, as you explain in this chapter, requires a precision that isn't already there in the challenge itself, the challenge that this makes that determinism makes God out to be the author of evil. And the reason why I say the precision isn't already there is because there seem to be at least two ways in which God might be said to author evil, one of mm -hmm. which might not be morally objectionable, even if the other one is morally objectionable or would make God out to be morally objectionable. So explain this distinction for us and, and, and help us to make the challenge of God as the author of evil in theological determinism, help that challenge to be a little bit more precise. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the precision comes from uh, James Anderson in his, in his chapter in Calvinism and the Problem of Evil. I think it's uh, Adam and the First Sin, maybe something like that. Um, and, and he's talking about, he talks about it as well as uh, Hugh McCann in Creation and the Sovereignty of God. And they both talk about how, and, and I'm not sure... If I if I agree with them completely here, I, I think I probably do. But they say, well, if you're if you mean okay, God is an author, and there's evil in the story, then yeah, in that sense, he he authored evil, but he's not morally culpable for it. He's not morally responsible. So there's at least two senses. One is authoring evil such that you're responsible for it, and it's it's your fault. You're you're morally it's it's morally objectionable that you would author it that way. And then author uh, in a in a thin sense that just you created the story in which there is evil. And so, yeah, you're an author in that sense, but we're not holding you morally culpable. It's not wrong. So that would be like Tolkien is the author of Smeagol's evil, even though we don't rightly hold Tolkien accountable for Smeagol's actions. And some of that is just alleviated by the authorial analogy. But uh, I think more of that is alleviated in our case with God through dialogism. Mm. Uh, because God interacts with the, the novel of reality in a different manner than, than Tolkien does. Um, Tolkien isn't entering in and he's not uh, hardening uh, Smeagol's heart by, by offering him grace, right? But, I, but God does do that. And so uh, this is why it's so interesting, too, that God's a better author than us. <laughs> he authors in, in a different way than we do in this dialogical manner, which it's, it's like Plato's dialogues. It's, it's, it's ironically like Hume's dialogues concerning, concerning natural reason, if he is Philo, if he is that character, uh, which is interesting because he's arguing against God. But uh, yeah, so so God is the better author, and we again we are good authors insofar as we author like God, uh, that we're representing, that we're imaging God in our creativity. So um, the 
the objection comes through like self-defeat. That's one that, that um, people have talked about a lot with Calvinism, that if you're determined to have the beliefs that you do, then uh, you can't have any warrant for them or you can't be justified in those beliefs because you were forced to have them anyways. And that's a really weird objection. Actually, Richard Swinburne argues against that the, the free willer of free willers himself says that that doesn't lead to epistemic self-defeat because you could be determined by rational processes to come to those beliefs. And if you were, it doesn't matter if you were predetermined, predestined, preordained to come to that belief because the processes, the mechanism by which you come to that belief is through your reason. And so uh, that's great. It doesn't end there, though. It can get even worse. So uh, Jim Slagle, a great philosopher. I love this guy. Uh, he's been on my podcast before. He wrote this great book called The Epistemological Skyhook. It's it's uh, basically an a- adaptation of C.S. Lewis's argument from reason against naturalistic determinism, naturalism, and determinism simpliciter just generally. And so he actually tries to argue this against uh, theological determinism and says, okay, fine. God may have granted, uh, God may have predestined you to use your rational faculties in order to come to the beliefs that you hold. Cool. But in order for you to be justified in your beliefs, you have to have a good explanation for your, you have to have an explanation for your belief. And this is what we talked about with the story. You have to have a historical condition. It has to be an explanation. It can't be deus ex machina. Smeagol just can't randomly out of nowhere be a great guy and then become some raging murderer. Yeah. It doesn't make sense in the story. So it has to be an explanation for the belief. It has to be a good explanation. Right? God's a good author. It can't just be out of nowhere. It can't be a weak one that he stubbed his toe one day and then wanted to become a murderer. That's not a good explanation. And here's the, the rub here. It has to be your explanation. So even if God is predestined you to form a rational belief through your processes, if God's the one making you do that, then it seems like that's God's reason and not yours. That's God's explanation for the belief, right. not yours. And if it is, then the culpability transfers back to God. So it's God's fault that you had this belief, even if it's rationally justified, because you used a reason to form it. God made you do that. And so all the evil, wicked stuff that you do, all your pro-attitudes, meaning like your beliefs, your desires, and then your actions on those pro-attitudes, those beliefs and desires, all that, all that culpability traces right back to God. And so here uh, I use um, mechanism ownership and reasons responsiveness, some, some, uh, some modern theories in uh, fl- the philosophy of free will that says you can be determined to have these beliefs, but uh, as long as you're the, the mechanism by which you form those wasn't overridden, then it's still your belief. Mm. So by God presenting something to you and reasoning with you through scripture, through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, through illumination, God's not overriding. He's not manipulating you. If, if he put a chip in your brain, yeah, it would override your mechanism and you wouldn't have that anymore, even if your reason's responsive. But God made us to be reasons responsive, to respond to the reasons in our history, which shape and form us. And he doesn't ever manipulate. He doesn't go in there and take control. He doesn't own our capacities. But he presents things to us and shapes us. And because he's God and because he's the author of the story, he can do that in such a way to bring about the desired result without being a manipulator. Mm. Because he knows what it would take to present to you the situation. He's been forming your process uh, he's been forming your character since you were born by putting you in situations, passively uh, permitting things to happen, actively um, bringing about things through interjection, through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, through your parents, through this guy who gave you a gospel track, all these different scenarios. And here's where Guillaume Bignon talks about a relevant difference between a manipulator 
and God is that a manipulator has to go against, has to take control of your ownership, your mechanism. Uh, they have to override your God-given characters, your God-given right. faculties in order to manipulate you. But God doesn't override your your God-given faculties. He's God. He's the one forming you all the way throughout this whole process. So that's a really big difference between a manipulation case where a creature is manipulating another creature right. and the, the case of theological determinism where God rightly is culminating this character in the person. And God's a good author, so he doesn't have to drop in ex machina <laughs> uh, beliefs that don't make sense within your, your uh, schema there. Sure. So... Okay, so then, if so, going back to the objection and the precision and stuff, we, we want to mm -hmm. make the the problem with the phrase determinism makes God the author of evil is that um, to author sin in a morally objectionable sense would obviously be to uh, to be the one to do the evil, and we're not talking about mm -hmm. him doing the evil; we're talking about him authoring a story yeah. which is done. And then when you start to talk about um, uh, manipulation and coercion, then you also start to distinguish between ways in which determining determining things could make God morally objectionable versus ways in which it might not. Um, now, I, I like the, what you what you said there about manipulation and coercion because I remember a couple of years ago, I think I was I was thinking about. Um, uh, some of my complaints with my friend and fellow faculty at Trinity, uh, Leighton Flowers. He has, he, in response to me saying his puppet and robot type um, analogies fall flat, he, he says, okay, well, just imagine a mad scientist gives somebody a potion and it changes them um, into, you know, what it is to, to think and feel the thoughts and feelings that the mad scientist wants them to do. And and what I like is that you've captured that that's exactly the kind of manipulation that we're saying is not the case with God as author, right? There's no, um, it, it, there isn't anything happening in time that is that is suddenly and without seeming explanation, just transforming a person's character or changing a person's decisions. It's all consistent with and flows naturally out of the kind of person that that person has become over the course of yeah. his or her lifetime um and, and i think that makes a lot of sense were, do you want to were you about to chime in i thought i saw you yeah 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 so and and that's great and um um i think guillaume bignon's kind of knocked a lot of those down in his first couple chapters of of his book excusing sinners of, of the manipulate the uh the uh, puppet puppeteer and puppet strings all those kind of uh Arguments. The one case you might be thinking uh, to yourself, the audience here, is, well, what about Paul on the road to Damascus? Mm. It seems like God kind of smacked him down and changed all of his attitudes and stuff like that. And I, I, I brought that up with Guillaume in, in our podcast. And uh, one thing that came out was, well, if God did do that and overrode, overrid his, uh, his ownership and uh, his mechanisms here, then that would mean Paul's not morally responsible for the, ac the outcome. Well, what's the outcome? <laughs> Salvation. Salvation. Yeah. Well, we don't care. That's fine. Yeah. But uh, but Guillaume uh, further added that it, it didn't happen in a vacuum, and he was interacting with these Christians the whole time. And so even there, it, it could be argued that uh, that God was preparing him, that he was giving him reasons for it, and then that happened. So either way, that's that's not bad because that's not an evil thing that happened. So. Uh, this is an uh, interesting footnote there. Yeah. Uh, before we get into the last set of questions I have for you, um, a, a thought just occurred to me, which is that somebody like Leighton Flowers is going to push back to this and say, okay, sure, um, we got, uh, God as an author could conceive of a, uh, a story in which a character's character is has formed such that, um, given the circumstances 
that the character is written into at any given point, the the rational decision that character makes is to sin, right? But uh, and, and so that takes away a lot of the sting of the manipulation, the coercion argument. But I wonder if Leighton Flowers and people like him would push back and say, okay, but those, but that character itself. Um, not the character, but the character's character, right? The the, the character's yeah. um, uh, disposition and, and feelings and desires and things. Those are cr- part of the way that God has created the person. So so how mm. which which Leighton and somebody like him might say is just sort of kicking the can down the road a little bit, right? It's still God manipulating. It's just that he's manipulating by crafting the person's desires and character to be uh, this or that, thereby guaranteeing the sinful outcome that he's predetermining. So, so how would you respond to that kind of objection before we start to close in on your last chapter? Yeah, again, I'd want to point to the asymmetry between good and evil. So God is has taken this active role in in the good things that we do. Um, but we can't attribute any evil to him. God, God's not tempted by it and by sin, and he can't tempt to sin. He can use secondary agents. But the whole mechanism is the whole point. So if God were to predetermine it in a way that's divine intervention, that he's he's forcing us and where it doesn't fit with our character, that's totally wrong. Yeah, that's totally bad. I don't like that at all. But so you're saying, um, so so the objection might be, well, he's still manipulating this person into this. Well, in what way? So if how is it, um, I guess they'd have to explain how it's manipulative if it's uh, consummating their nature instead of going against their nature. So how is your nature formed? I think a, a libertarian would want to say a similar thing to us, that our natures are formed through interactions with people, through interactions with our dog, through all sorts of things that we interact with in this story. Uh, add mon- or, uh not ad intra, but uh, intra-narratively or intra-mundane, if you don't want to consider this a novel, uh, that's how we're formed, by reacting to different things. Mm. And so you don't, there, there's one aspect where you look from the, the individual and you, you can never say, I really want to do this, but God's making me do that. Now you have reasons and you're acting out of your reasons. Even when you're being mugged, I don't think you're going against your reasons. Uh, I don't want to give you my wallet, but I also don't want to get shot in the head. <laughs> right. And so I have this hierarchy of desires that I'm choosing out of. And those desires were formed throughout my whole history of life. Right. And so even if I was determined to give this guy my wallet, I still had my reasons. They were still my, it was still my explanation for my beliefs that I acted on. And so uh, there's an asymmetry in that I would say that God allows us to continue to form evil desires and, and sinful desires. God's not putting those in there. But he's allowing it through our interactions and he's allowing it through the devil tempting us. And who knows what that looks like. And if it's ever really the devil who's tempting me, maybe he's worried more about the president or, you know, because he's not uh, omnipresent. So maybe it's just a lesser demon. I know there's a whole demonology <laughs> if you want a hierarchy thing. But um, God is allowing us to form evil characters and he's hardening us in certain aspects. Because we, we want to say as Calvinists that God does harden people's hearts. Mm-hmm. But I think this is is also really helpful for thinking through how God could harden someone's heart and still be good. Yeah. Well, he's hardening them by presenting his goodness to them, but not illuminating them through, uh, well, illumination or through uh, granting them understanding or interacting in them, interacting with them in a way that would bring about sim, um, salvation. And some people are going to hear that and go, well, if God could do this, then he could save everyone, and yet he doesn't. And I say, yeah, that's right. I believe that. God doesn't save everyone. I think God could if he wanted to, but that's not the story he's telling. Right. He's telling He's telling the story where 
the culmination is Christ and then the eschaton, but he's also demonstrating his wrath on sinners. He he hates sin, and I deserve that wrath, but he poured that out on Christ instead. Why did he pick you instead of, why did he pick me instead of my cousin? Why did he pick, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't have the mind of the maker here. I don't know. Intra- Intra-narratively, I might be able to give some reason, but I'm very, very hesitant to do that because he could pick anyone he wants sure. because he's in control. That's right. So, yeah, it makes sense within the story, but he could have easily not written me at all or written me in a different character or just allowed me on the disgusting path I was on. Right. Yeah, so so uh, there's a couple of things that you said there that I'm going to pick up on in the last couple of questions I have for you in a moment. But just to sort of put some flesh on the bones that you just uh, set up, we, we could say that the reason why the mad scientist and potion analogy that that, uh, that Leighton Flowers wants to use is uh, the reason why that fails is because t uh, to go back to the Tolkien analogy, Tolkien didn't have Saruman, uh, unbeknownst to himself, drink some potion and suddenly he becomes the wicked wizard Saruman, you know, in service to Sauron. Right. Um, Saruman, whatever kind of race the wizards are, I mean, they look human, but they seem to be their own their own race. I don't know what that is. But anyway, he was presumably mm -hmm. conceived and born as one of, uh, you know, this race with, you know, whatever sort of um, uh, nascent personality a zygote might have when it's first developing. But but it's, it's character that becomes the Saruman we encounter is something that develops over the course of Saruman's lifetime as a result of the interactions that, that Saruman has uh, prenatally, post natally in childhood and so forth yeah. with the world around him and that's why the analogy that uh, the, the potion and mad scientist thing doesn't hold up and what i like too about you mentioned how the hardening might be conceived of you know I think one could make the argument that when um, Gandalf goes to Saruman to try to convince him not to serve Sauron in the way that he wants to do, one could make the argument that by pleading with Saruman in that way, Gandalf is actually hardening Saruman's heart. Yeah. Right? right, in in a way That's that good. would not make Gandalf, let alone Tolkien, responsible, morally culpable for the actions that Saruman ultimately decides to do as a result of his hardening. So I think that there's a lot yeah. of um, fruit to be born there. But I want to turn now, in the time we have remaining, to your fifth and final chapter of your thesis. Um, there are two questions I want to ask you about it, and then we'll wrap up. And the first of these two questions uh, it, it follows naturally from a word that you used a couple of times in, in the course of our conversation, which is the word allows, or in your thesis you used the word permits. Because in discussing how a, ro a robust God as author analogy lends itself to a powerful theodicy, which you go on to do in this chapter, you several times say some things along the lines of God permits his creatures to sin. But he doesn't himself commit the sin, and that's very true. But I even, as a, as a determinist, struggle to see how the word permit even makes sense here, or to use the word that you used in our mm -hmm. conversation a moment ago, allows. You know, um, uh, uh, Tolkien, he doesn't merely permit Saruman to create the Urukai, right? It, it, or mm -hmm. so it seems to me. He, he ordains it. Even if Saruman... Um, autonomously desired to do so sorry sorry even if Saruman had the desire to do so it's not as if his desire was autonomous right, God, right. Uh, uh, Tolkien authored the story in such a way that Saruman's desire is what Tolkien um, wrote to happen um, it didn't so Tolkien authored not merely permitted Saruman to do what his desire was and so before I ask a question about the Odyssey which is something that you cover in this last thesis can you help 
me and viewers to understand how it makes any sense to use the language of permission or allowing to say that God permits in, or allows evil in a theological determinism like ours. Yeah, for sure. And and this is something Calvin takes up uh, as well in the Institutes. And uh, my, my second chair, John Feinberg, takes up following Calvin and saying permission is kind of um, it's it's kind of squishy. We, it's it's a way to uh, God's permitting. It's it's a way to try and get God off the hook. But but then after Calvin, um, some more reformed scholastics, um, I think Turton uses permission as well. So permission doesn't have to be at odds with the divine decree. God decreed it, but how how is it that the decree is brought about? So if we want to, the, the decree is over here. It's This is the plan that's going to happen. And here he's actively giving you a positive reason to do something. He's presenting it in such a way that he knows uh, it'll be irresistible to you because he's presented it in this manner. He's given you illumination. Maybe it's, maybe it's your salvation. Maybe it's trust in Jesus. Um, so he's actively playing that role, which is a different role that he plays when he is hardening your heart or when he is... Um, not intervening, not interjecting in a situation where you're going to sin. And so in that case, he could have done it. He could have stopped you. He could have stopped me so many times from sinning. And when I first became a Calvinist, it was a big problem for me because I was such a wicked, vile sinner and I had no control. And I was so angry at God. Why didn't you stop me from sinning? And I had to wrestle through that a lot. And my, my brother helped me a ton with that. That was great. But, uh, but so there's a there's a different role. There's the asymmetry that God plays when it comes to your sin and your good works. Uh, and so I wouldn't say God empowers you to do these good works, but he's not empowering you to sin. He's he's allowing you to sin. And it's what Calvin's getting at in, in wanting to get away from that allowing uh, permission language is saying that God it was somehow out of his control. No, it was still within God's control because he still has the power to intervene, interject, Whenever he wants, if he wanted to, he could have. It's not as if it was outside of his control, but he allowed you to continue on uh, forming those wicked desires, those pro attitudes, whatever it was. Uh, never, I would say, never without a greater good in mind, though. He always has a purpose for the evil that he allows, um, but we can't say that he's actively doing it. He's not doing the evil. He's, if you want to say he's causing it. He's causing it through secondary means. Mm -hmm. He's causing it through maybe you being tempted or you uh, through through the natural conditions that he's uh, uh, set up in the story for you to be influenced by this person and this person, right? And so that's that's what I'm trying to get at when I'm when I'm using language of allowance or permission that God could have, but He didn't uh, interject and stop you from doing that. Okay, so what, what do you think about that? Is that is that making sense? Well, I I I think it's I think it does. I I don't think it's going to um, satisfy uh, Calvinism's critics, but then again, I don't think much will, mm. except for God Himself. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, I guess what I I think what I would want to say is that um, when we're talking about God permitting somebody in His world to do evil, um, as theological determinists, we aren't we are still saying He wrote that in the way that a character uh -huh. writes a story. Um, yeah. It's not as if the character, it's not as if the sinner autonomously decides to sin um, and that that wasn't what God had actually wrote to happen. Exactly. But exactly. the reason we can say that it's still permission is because in that 
world in which uh, everything is sensible and coherent, you know, that this person's character has developed in the way that it has over the course of his or her lifetime and the circumstances present themselves in such a way that uh, it makes sense that they choose to sin over not sinning. Um, God is not intervening in all of that in some way. He's not He's yeah. not stepping in and preventing this from happening and causing this to happen. It's, it's the world and all of its parts that he has written to coherently work in the way that it does. It has produced the action that he has uh, preordained. And so it, it's permission intranarratively, maybe we could say, yep. but not yep. extra. It's not from the outside. God isn't merely, yeah. Tolkien isn't merely permitting Sar- Sar- Saruman to create the Urukai. He is. But, but but from within the world, if he were within the world, he's letting things play out the way that one would expect them to, such that Saruman creates the Urukai. That so it's that inside the story yeah. permission we're talking about, right? Yeah, and and there's a helpful um, there's a help another helpful tool, but there there's the the thesis is kind of technical. It's not uber technical, but it's a little bit technical. It's a little bit hard to to explain it all on a podcast, but. Uh, Van Hooser distinguishes between three types of authorship, and authorship one is like theological determinism, theological authorship. God wrote the whole story. But then there's authorship two and three, and authorship two is God as a character in the story interacting with his characters, and this is when he's bringing things about through his word. Um, he's brought everything in authorship one. He's brought everything about through his word, the whole story. This is the the talking outside, uh, but then if Tolkien were to write himself into the story, like C.S. Lewis did, or like God does in the story of reality, this is authorship too. That he, this is where he's bringing things about actively, where all the stuff that he's that he's not actively bringing about by authorship two, but that he has sovereignly decreed in authorship one. Those the, those are the sins. God's not actively responsible. He's not making anyone do anything against their wills or against their the the desires that are formed intranarratively. And then authorship three is like um, divine, um, divine special revelation. It's like special. It's like the Bible. So he's he's actually or written theophany. the book within the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Theophany is special revelation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so per- particularly the Bible is a story w- within the story. That's like a a, a manuscript of the story. Mm-hmm. It's like telling you how how you should play your part how you should and it actually functions to help you form different beliefs i read the bible and i say oh i should do this i shouldn't do that right or i should relate to god in this manner so there's there's three types of authorship at play and that's getting at what what you were just talking about with being outside and being sovereign over it decreeing but then also we we're not saying that god is actively causing the sin right but he is per- permitting it yeah so to go back to that three types of authorship we we would say god is the author of sin in the first sense of authorship, the same way Tolkien authors these sins of Saruman. Yeah. Um, but within the narrative, uh, in the, in which he is active, his mm-hmm. authorship in within that world is, uh, in terms of that third kind, is only when it comes to things that aren't unrighteous. Um, the actions of creation. Second, yeah, the second kind. The, authorship too. Okay, the yeah. second kind then. So in that second yeah. kind, he is directly at work. He's appearing in theophany to people and in, you know inviting them to do things, or he's stepping in and putting scales over the eyes of Paul to ensure that he does what he has written him to do. Um, that's the second kind. But in the third kind of causation, or 
or authorship. Um, the author isn't actually in time intervening to cause somebody to do something. And um, yeah. we would say that when people sin, it's not that third kind of authorship taking place. God is, or it is that third kind, but it, but it's not God doing it. It's God setting up the circumstances that naturally within the coherent world he's created lead to the person sinning. Is that kind of what we're saying? Yeah, and and this is another important uh, concept um, to to re-emphasize about uh, voice ideas and stuff. So so there is um, if God wants to create uh, this type of character, this type of character will respond in this way in this scenario. And so it's not like an external constraint. This was a worry from from Dr. Uh, Van Hooser and Feinberg. Uh, it, it's not an external con constraint that God is forced uh, to do this or that. that. That might be more reminiscent of, of uh, Molinism and what raises the the grounding objection, right? Uh, that there's these, God has to play with the cards that he's dealt. Well, to this use is a little phrase bit that Molinist uh, William Lane Craig has used. Right, right, yeah. right. So, uh, no, here, if, if God wants to create like a um, Judas, that's a, a particular type of person. Certain things are going to happen which give rise to him uh, betraying the Lord. But he didn't, that's an explicit example of him being predetermined, predestined to do that. And yet he, he wasn't forced against his will. He wasn't like, man, I really love Jesus. Why am I, why is my will being turned in this direction? No, he, he actively want, wanted to, even if he had conflicting ideas and stuff. But he, he didn't have the freedom to do otherwise. Otherwise, we are not saved today. We don't have the resurrection. We don't have the crucifixion. We don't have forgiveness of our sins. And so that God did not afford him a uh, principle of alternate possibilities. And yet he was free to do so because he had responded to the reasons and he had, he was an own, he was the owner of the mechanism by which he formed his beliefs. Uh, and there were wicked beliefs and he acted on them and God brought about a greater good from that. Well, and he foreordained that it would be done. But here we're talking about that third sense of authorship, um, not yep. the second or first. Um, okay, uh, last question before we start to wrap up. Um, in this last chapter, you know, we, we've already I've already mentioned uh, a little bit earlier that um, the thing that I want to focus on most uh, on this in this last chapter is where you think this analogy can help us in the Odyssey, uh, because you rightly observe that an author like God could have created heroes who freely choose to exercise their answerability in morally upright ways. So the question that naturally leads uh, us to ask, or the question that we're naturally led to ask is, why did God choose to write a story with evil and sinful rebellion in it? We might even take the, we might even ask the question that you did a moment ago, which is, if God could have um, resulted in the salvation of everybody, why did he write a story in which only some, indeed possibly a minority, although that's another question, um, are in fact saved? And so my last question then is how, and here expand upon or you know, um, talk about how you answer this question in your fifth chapter, but but how how can a robust God as author analogy help determinists like you and me to explain why God, like the author of a drama, um, would predetermine His creatures to sin if He's the thrice holy God that we read about in Revelation and in whose presence Isaiah became undone because he was um, so moved by the holiness of God? Why? Mm. How does the analogy help us to understand why God might write a story? as he's done in reality, in which not all of his creatures act righteously all the time. Yeah, yeah. And just acknowledging uh, right off the bat, I learned this from Dr. Feinberg in his Problem of Evil class, that, that there are some real, real wickedness out in the world, like 
some of the listeners here have experienced it. Some of the listeners may have done some them, themselves. Um, children get leukemia. My nephew had it. Like there, this is not a conversation I'm I'm trying to have with someone in the midst of a crisis, right? Uh, so this is this is a an academic discussion. It's still theologically important. It's absolutely uh, important, uh, and I would say it's important to to get a grip on this when you're not in the uh, in the cusp or uh, in the grasp of a uh, um, tragedy so that you have some ballast in your boat when the storm comes. So uh, don't I, I really don't want to come off as callous is what I'm saying. I, I don't want to say that this is just purely academic. I understand there's genuine suffering, there's evil that we've experienced that's, that's wicked that would really mess with our theology and has for many of us. Um, that's not the conversation that, that's about to take place. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. So uh, in a I borrow from Scott Christensen's new book, What About Evil? And he calls his theodicy a greater glory theodicy. And I really like that. Uh, that God's glory, and he's he's taking uh, he's taking this approach from Alvin Plantinga. Mm, I forgot which book it's in, but it's the Felix Culpa defense. The, the oh, oh, Felix Culpa, that Catholic, Catholic uh, churches talk about the, the oh, happy sin. Um, and it's not like like gleefully happy, but because of the fall, we have incarnation and reconciliation. Because we've seen the depths of our depravity, we can see the height of Christ entering in, stepping down to our station, and lifting us back up out of the mire and muck. And so, ultimately, what I'm what I'm arguing is that I think Van Hooser's uh, theodrama, this this authorial analogy and God interacting with the world in this dramatic fashion that that uh, this authorial analogy fashion gives rise to this really good theodicy. I think it's a great theodicy that why is there evil in the world? Well, because God wanted to tell a story where he's fully revealing his attributes, where he's he's not just re revealing his goodness, but he's revealing his hatred for sin. He's revealing his justice. He's re revealing his mercy. Uh, we, we don't get to see mercy without sin. We don't get to see uh, the Sometimes people will make this weird metaphysical argument about evil that like evil has to exist in order for us to have good to see goodness. It's just wrong. Like look at Genesis one. They knew that God was good. He created things good. There was no evil yet. Um, so we don't we don't need that. But if God's going to tell the story that He wants to to tell, it necessitates evil characters like Satan. It necessitates a fall in order for us to be lifted up from the fall. So why why is there sin and evil in the world? Because God wanted to demonstrate His attributes. And you say, well, that seems like he's kind of a jerk. And you say, well, <laughs> I think you kind of have the wrong perspective here because you have, and I, this is a classic Calvinistic answer, and I don't want to be a jerk about it, but it seems like you have a little bit more of a man-centered approach that God should be about making me happy. So, well, if you go with the Edwardsian uh, take, if God were to have you as the summum bonum, as the greatest good, then he'd be like an idolater. Mm. God has to have his glory as the greatest good. And it's actually the best for us. This is maybe John Piper. It's better for us that God does that. If God has himself as the greatest glory and we're blessed through that, like that, that makes sense. We get to see God as being who he is, as being the, the summum bonum, the, the greatest good. God can't direct his glory at us. Like we can't be the, the, uh, the, we can't be the, the terminus of, of reality. It can't be all about us. And so what I want to argue is that there's evil in the world because God wants to 
demonstrate his his love for us and demonstrate his mercy towards us and demonstrate his grace and that's a better story than a story where there is no fall and it's kind of a harsh answer to to hear at first but i think if you think through it i think if you think through the the biblical phenomena if you think through god's omnipotence and you know his divine attributes and his plan that this isn't plan b <laughs> god god knew what was going to happen yeah. he oh. knew that adam and eve were going to sin whatever view uh, well, I didn't just know it. He, he wrote the story to happen that way, right? right. But but even if even if you're uh, an Arminian who holds to uh, omniscience, you do affirm that God knew that this was going to happen, mm -hmm. and He could have stopped that from happening. And so uh, they say, well, uh, no, because uh, you needed this. God couldn't have taken that away because you needed this genuine uh, challenge in order to have a free relationship. You needed to have that, but. I want to argue that God knew the whole time and planned it, because I, I think that's I think it's much more theologically satisfying. I think it's more uh, psychologically satisfying that God didn't roll the dice with our reality and say, "Well, I you know it's a fifty-fifty shot," um, but rather that it was His plan the entire time to allow us to fall. He didn't actively make us fall, but to allow Satan to tempt Adam and Eve in order to bring about this greater good, which is the greatest good on the cross. And so then uh, from looking at the cross, uh, John Frame calls it the uh, Christological uh, greater good defense, a Christocentric greater good defense, I think, because we're looking at the cross as the greatest good. If God could take the worst evil in history, the God-man being crucified wrongfully, the only one who deserved not to die, being crucified, the author entering into the story and his characters murdering him, you know, in a, just butchering him in an in a egregious fashion, if God could take that worst evil, the worst possible evil, and bring the greatest good out of it, then of course he could do that with the evil that I experienced in my life. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, God has ordained the evil that happens. But why do you ordain this particular evil? Why do you ordain That's that right. my nephew gets cancer? Hey, look, I don't know. This is called skeptical theism. I'd have to be omniscient to know all the reasons that God has for that. Um, I know that he knows, and I've seen him do it with the worst evil. I've seen him do it with the cross. So I can trust his character. I can trust his... Uh, authorial providence that if he can do it with the worst then he can bring a greater good out of my nephew's leukemia i don't know what that is i'm not going to presume to tell you there's a bunch of things that i've seen but i'm not going to say this is the exact reason or these are the hundred reasons i don't know i don't know the full story i don't know the plot i'm not outside the story like god is right. but he is and i can trust him because of the because of the cross yeah and and he had he had preordained that to happen yeah i i'm with you i find that much more compelling than alternative theodicies um and in fact in in my debate book on predestination and providence i um i i argue that or at least let me put it this way i explain that for me the thought that god might be allowing evil uh, he might have he might have a greater good uh, of libertarian free will in allowing evil to happen in the abstract, but when it comes to individual acts of evil, I would I don't find any solace in 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 the thought that God mm. permitted um, uh, senseless evil to be done to me, and then he's just like an awesome judo master who's able to work good out of it, right? I find yeah. much more solace knowing that the very fact, that the very loss of my wife and my two unborn children is something that God wrote into the story because of the good that he brings out of it. Yeah. I find much more right. solace in that. And, and I find the story, you know, the, the, the theodicy that you just offered very compelling, but I just want to add one thing to it and see if you think there might be something to this because I haven't heard anybody else say, put it in this way. Um, I don't think that it's merely about 
us being able to see, to, to witness all of God's glory, you know, uh, attributes that we would never be able to see happen if it weren't for the reality of sin. I think it's also that God wants us as his creatures to emulate him. Um, he mm. wants us to be able to act in the way that he would act in um, the face of sin. So just as God's nature is to show, and he loves showing mercy to people that are suffering, so he wants his creatures to show mercy to people that are suffering. But that's impossible apart from yeah. the reality of sin and, and, and pain. And so do you think that, the, that on top of everything that you just said, we might also be able to say that God wrote a story that has sin in it so that his characters can experience some of the things, uh, some of what it means to be like God in the face of sin? Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. So uh, in, in giving the, uh, the Christ-centered, Christ, uh, Christological, greater good theodicy, uh, or, or um, narratival theodicy, and saying that, that, that Christ ultimately it was his self-revelation that is the highest good. Uh, that that's not incompatible with other ones like soul building, like uh, which I think was what you're were, you're were getting at there. That uh, God wants to build us, build our souls into. Uh, it's like soul building with Imago Day in there too, right? He wants to build our souls into and and form the kind of character that represents him that images him well it, in the face of suffering or well, but 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 so just and i'll let you continue in just a moment but i just want to be clear yeah. the, the reason why i don't see this as as the soul building theodicy is because mm -hmm. you know look paul talks about how uh, when we are raised from the dead and glorified it's going to be like in the twinkling of an eye that we're transformed there's there yeah. seems to be a profound sense in which god um will transform our characters instantaneously when we're glorified um, in some real ways. Um, and, and, and he could have made us like that from the beginning without the fall and sin and so forth. I'm not merely talking about building a soul that is like God. I'm talking about giving his creatures the opportunity to live out the Imago Dei in the face of sin. Not just to merely mm. be like God, but to act like God. And there are no ways yeah. to act like God in the face of sin without there being sin. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. I, I, I could hear I could hear someone pushing back and saying, well, well, God was acting like God without sin for whatever you want to say. If it's, yeah, but he wasn't acting like God or... in the face of sin until there was sin for him to be in the face of. Yeah, but so he didn't have to write this story with sin in it, and we could have still acted like God, but but not acted like God in the face of sin. Um, yeah, I, I like it. I'm 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 just trying to uh, think of what what people might. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to preempt some stuff here. I, I like yours. So the the soul building. Uh, I like that. I also like what you said about in an instant, like because because Paul says that right. But um, also we we believe in a sovereign God who sovereignly wrote the story and calls us home at a particular time in our life for his own reason. And so maybe that's after a certain amount of experiences, he wanted us to have this, this, and this. And I don't think our memories are completely wiped or anything like that. Uh, I think that would be worse. I think that would like destroy the whole story, all that work that he did in our lives. But we, we see that in proper context at the end. And so being, being good Calvinists, we affirm that, yeah, God called us home precisely when, when he went, like Gandalf, like he, we, we didn't uh, show up in heaven uh, early or late, but precisely when, when the Lord predetermined. And I think there is some soul building in there. He he was uh, sanctifying us to a certain point. And it's uh, it's not like we got hit by a bus, uh, unbeknownst to God. Now he has to snap us. Uh, he has to correct all the rest of the sanctification process. No, he knew what he was doing. He called us home. And yeah, he's going to he's gonna complete us. 
Um, I don't want to say I'm anywhere near completion. So if I die tomorrow, yeah, he's going to have to snap a lot uh, of sanctification in there. But I, I hear what you're saying. What, what I'm trying to get at is that uh, God's glory, God's self-revelation, I think, is the pinnacle. Uh, as Craig talks about in his um, uh, in his penal substitution, it's the, it's the center of the gem. It's the face of the gem. But there's all these different models of the uh, not incarnation. The atonement. Um, the atonement. The atonement. And so this this I, I like that a lot. This would be like the central gem, yeah. the central face of the gem. And then there's lots of other defenses and theodicies that fit within the the uh, theodramatic. Uh, greater greater glory, greater good theodicy. Yeah, no, I, I like that. All right, well, we're coming up on that two hours that uh, you and I said we we could we could devote to this. So let's start to wrap up. Um, I often like to give my guests an opportunity to share a parting message. Um, I want to slightly uh, adapt that a little bit and have you speak first to fellow determinists and then to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are critics of determinism. Um, in speaking to determinists like me, my question for you is, um, are there any, uh, what, what sorts of questions do you think are left to be explored? What sort of work is there left to be done in terms of the God as author analogy that you'd like to see determinists like me and Bignon and, and others do um, to, to further flesh out how this analogy can help us to um, conceive of the relationship between God and the creation that he has uh, predetermined? Yeah, so on, on the philosophical side, there's uh, Al Mealy's uh, zygote argument and uh, it, it, it comes I forgot the goddess's name but it, it makes this goddess who uh, created this zygote and said in 20 years the zygote's going to kill somebody and and that it could present a unique challenge for the authorial analogy and you were kind of hinting at this a little bit and you even mentioned zygote um, that's something that needs to be clarified more and how uh, how there's disanalogy between Athena let's call her and and Yahweh and how they're yeah they, they seem similar uh, and whether we need to flesh out whether that is manipulation because Al Mealy doesn't say it's manipulation, but it seems like it's manipulation that if she's predetermined this death to happen in the, the zygote will grow up and kill someone. It seems like it might be. So we need to, we need to flesh that one out. I think that's a pretty good challenge. Um, I, I'm not a philosopher of free will, but I have some friends that are, that are determinists and they say it might be a challenge, but I think they can handle it. Um, I want them to. So if they're listening, go ahead and handle that for us. Um, that's a, that's a good one. For theological determinists, um, you don't have to be philosophers, but you should know what you're talking about, mm -hmm. right? So for the folks at home, like a lot of times Calvinists sound like they're talking about monologic authorship <laughs> and they sound like they're a little bit like uh, very, very hardcore because they want to affirm God's sovereignty. Amen and amen. I love that. But you do need to affirm that we are image bearers of God, that we are creatures with genuine freedom. And you need to know what you mean by that. When you say genuine freedom, a, a libertarian is going to say that's not genuine freedom. You need to have the principle of alternate possibility. You don't have to be a philosopher, but think through what you're saying when you're representing this position, yeah. and and have some humility. Have be able to say, hey, look, man, I'm I'm coming at this theologically, and I'm trying to be uh, honest with the text, and and have some humility and say, I'm I'm not sure about that. I don't know. Let me come back to you. Let me let me reason that through a little bit more. Hey, could you help me uh, think through this? You know. Instead of, well, if you're on a minion, I have to destroy you. <laughs> like you, a lot of times you're doing us all a disservice by doing that. And you might be, you might end up misrepresenting the, uh, the author yeah. and, and making him responsible, genuinely making him responsible for, for sin and evil. Yeah. Well said. Okay. Now let's let you speak to the indeterminists or non-determinists that are watching. Um, 
I, again, as I, I think I mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot of um, fruitfulness. There, there's a lot of fruit to be borne by the God as author analogy, out, even even apart from the determinism issue, areas especially in the incarnation, but also in theodicy and others. Um, so I would like it if there's a way that this analogy, those benefits could be gained by some, even somebody who isn't a determinist. Um, but sees the values in those values in the analogy. Um, but there are those, including Braxton Hunter, he explicitly said as much when, when I discussed this with him on the show. He said, I'm not attracted to the analogy, or, or the thing that holds me back from embracing the analogy is the fact that he is not a determinist, and, and it seems to him as if the analogy might seem to entail determinism. So here's a question I have for you to speak to non-determinists. Um, how, how, what would you say to them, to, to, to non-determinists who are reluctant to embrace the analogy because it seems to them to entail determinism? Would you say that yes, that there is some, there are, there may be at least some ways in which it could be meaningfully embraced, even by people who reject determinism, or and, and this would be a perfectly legitimate answer. I'm just curious to hear what it is. Would mm -hmm. you say that perhaps? If it's the best analogy, then so what? You know, you've got to. If it's the best analogy because of those other ways in which it succeeds over other analogies, then if it also entails determinism, then just accept it and bite the bullet. Um, <laughs> or, or would you yeah. say something else somewhere in between those extremes? What would you say to uh, people like Braxton watching? Yeah, I'd say uh, I'd say yes to a couple of those things actually. So one, if you if you hear the logic of dialogical polyphonic authorship, if you're hearing that, oh wow, the causal. Uh, joint at which God interacts is interjection, and He is bringing things about such that uh, He could determine them, and yet you're still free. If you like that, go ahead, jump on the bandwagon. That's great. Go go buy uh, Van Hooser's Remythologizing Theology. It's a great read. He's got lots of puns in there. It's it's thick and it's dense. So you go slow, but do that. Go ahead and do that. If, however, you're you're you don't like uh, determinism, um, one re re repent of that. I think the Bible uh, says that. <laughs> But uh, whatever, man. I got some friends that, that aren't as well, uh, who are, are good libertarians. There's there's other ways you can use it. Um, it might not be a strong analogy. It might not be an explanatory, a strong explanatory analogy. But you can parse it back and you can use it to talk about God's relation with time. So you're you're discipling someone. You should be if for those listening, all of you on other on every side should be discipling someone. That's our call. Um, when you're discipling someone and they say, well, I don't understand how God relates to time. Uh, if you're a B theorist, well, it depends. You could probably not be a B theorist too. But how is it that God can be omnipresent? How is it that that God can be outside of time? Well, just like uh, Lewis uses this and says, just like uh, an author is writing a story and he's writing and, and it's the pinnacle of the the story. Someone's about to do something. Uh, they're they're at uh, they're at Mount Doom and the ring's about to get thrown in and then it pauses. Because Tolkien had to go uh, get a coffee. Well, it doesn't pause. No, no. The the story uh, intranarratively is still going on. They have no idea what's going on with the author at a different level. Such is is God's relation to creation. Or, um, you know, how can God be everywhere? Well, Tolkien, in in a sense, is in every single page of his book. He's in every line. He's in every word because he wrote those. He's omnipresent throughout there. And yes, this is this is why it's not a strong analogy because there's uh, instant uh, disanalogy because he's not really like present in the same way we would say God is present in this reality. But it's a weaker analogy to help us conceptualize how God can be everywhere at once. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, I think there's there's plenty of ways that you can use it. Um, um, what's her name? Uh, and I'm drawing blanks all day today here. 
I, I mentioned her a few times already, uh, but I don't know why. Uh, uh, Dorothy. Uh... The mind. Dorothy Sayers, mind of the maker. She's she's not a Calvinist. Uh, she's a, a Catholic uh, thinker, and she uses this plenty. Incarnation. That uh, incarnation is probably one of the best ones. Um, so there's different ways you can use this, and I challenge you to find some new ways to <laughs> represent different doctrines, uh, the the God world relation, and and do it in a helpful way. But I do want to argue that I think the best explanatory use of the analogy is the dialogical one, and to do that, you need to be a determinist. And I, I think this is good because it helps us see how someone can be morally responsible uh, and yet still determined. I think that's a really good thing because with the with with the Arminian uh, charge that it makes God the author of sin, look, I don't want to make God the author of sin and evil. I don't like that. I'm glad that you guys continue to raise that. Please keep you know, holding us to that. We don't want to do that. But we do want to affirm God's sovereignty, and I think this is a helpful way to do it. So, yeah. Very good. If it's not, then I'll drop it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, at least we'd like to think we would. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, right. you know, I'll just add that I'd be interested to see. I don't, I, I, I will, I certainly have some suspicions, but I'd be interested to see if there are any um, non-determinists who could embrace the analogy and maybe work out how a Stephen King-style authorship might benefit from all of the... Um, things that they would agree with us are beneficial in the analogy, but without the determinism part. Now, you and I would agree that's still unfortunate in that it doesn't reflect the biblical teaching, but of course we could yeah. be wrong about the biblical teaching, and as such, um, yeah. I'd be interested to see if anybody's able to roll with that. I, I guess we'll, we'll time will tell. All right. Yeah. Um, is there any way that viewers can access your thesis now or in the future so that they can read in greater detail what we've been discussing? Maybe, is there a way that maybe they could contact you and you could email it to them or something, or, or is it something you need to keep close to your chest for a while yeah so i'm going to um i'm, I'm gonna make a, a couple of changes there there's some stuff i wanted to add as well so i want to add an appendix my, my paper uh critiquing the simulation hypothesis and arguing instead for the authorial analogy so there's some stuff i want to tune up there and then i've had some friends uh offer to to see if it if it's publishable if it's published worthy if if so i'm gonna need to add like a 50 pages to it or something like that. So for now, I'm going to probably hold it closer to the chest, but I, I'll, I will be going through uh, similar in, in a similar fashion that we've done on my own podcast. So if you want uh, to hear a little bit more about it, uh, you can go ahead and there. I, I might add some more onto my uh, my blog posts. I might do that. It'll be, you know, uh, more in the in the lay level because right now I, I want to beef this up. I want to <laughs> see if, I, if this is publishable. I want to do that. That'd be great. Um, yeah, so I think the best way is to, to follow me on social media. Yeah. Well, and that leads nicely to my final question for you is where can viewers find you on social media? And also, where can they go to find Parker's Pensy's blog podcast and, and YouTube channel um, so that as you start to uh, do the things that you just described in those places, they'll be able to follow along? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks. So you can go to parkersetacase.com. Uh, S-E-T-T-E-C-A-S-E, parkersetacase.com. That's my blog. Uh, that's where the, the Parker's Pensies blog is at. And through there, you can also find my audio podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you look at Spotify or uh, Anchor or um, Apple Podcasts, any of, the, any of the big ones there, you, you just type in Parker's Pensies, you'll find my audio podcast. And then search my name on YouTube. Or uh, this is kind of funny. If you just search Frogs Eating, my video will be the first one. And you can just click on uh, Parker Set a Case and it'll bring you right to my, my YouTube channel where I have some frog videos 
Uh, but I also have the, all the videos of my podcast as well. What did you say to look up? Frogs eating? Yeah, frogs eating. It should be the first one. Don't make me a liar here. Uh, well, National Geographic has one before oh, yours. Those guys. But that National Geographic video has only 2.3 million, and your giant African bullfrogs eating everything in sight, including mice, <laughs> that video has 37 million. So you've vastly outdone Nat Geo. That's yeah. pretty cool. Every now and then they change the algorithms. Uh, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Well, Parker, it's Good. been an absolute blast having you on the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope that um, over time, maybe we can get to know each other a little bit better. But in the meantime, again, thank you for coming on my show. And I'll encourage people to check out the Parker uh, Parker's Pensies blog, a podcast and, and YouTube channel. And um, uh, just thanks for helping us to think through what I think is a really fascinating discussion. Hopefully viewers find it equally sa uh, fascinating. Thanks again. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Thanks so much for giving me this platform. Uh, love, love what you're doing. And uh I'm excited to see more of what you're doing. So, yeah, you got to follow on me here. Well, I suspect, given the small number of viewers that have been watching live, uh, that maybe the God as author analogy isn't as fascinating to most of you as it is to Parker and me, um, which is a bit of a shame, but that's quite all right. Some of us are into the more esoteric uh, esoteric aspects of theology. No big deal. Um, but I do hope that you enjoyed not just this interview with Parker, but also this, this three-episode series that I've done. Um, at some point in the future, I might further elaborate on how I think that the God is author analogy um, <clears throat> might uh, be employed by Calvinistic determinists like myself, but for the time being, I'm going to let this series come to its conclusion with this third entry in the series. Um, and uh, next episode, two weeks from today, which will be Monday, uh, January 25th at 6 p.m. Pacific and 9 p.m. Eastern, uh, I intend to do an episode on Sola Scriptura. Um, the reason being, I was recently invited to participate in a debate. Uh, I was invited by Marlon Wilson, the guy who hosts the show The Gospel Truth. It's a show I've been on before. I've debated the topic of hell there, if I'm remembering correctly, I also debated, uh, actually, I don't think I debated the topic of hell there. I debated limited atonement on that show. But anyway, Marlon invited me to debate a Roman Catholic on the topic of Sola Scriptura. And on March 4th, I think it is, um, I will be doing a live debate with this Roman Catholic on Marlon's show in which I will be affirming that uh, scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. Uh, and so in, in, to help me to prepare for that debate, I think I, um, ho I'm, I'm tentatively planning on um, doing my next episode of the show in two weeks time on Sola Scriptura to explain why I have the conviction that scripture is indeed our only um, infallible uh, rule of faith. S Susan asks in the chat if I'm talking live now. Yes, I am. As I said, I introduced the pre-recorded interview um, live, and I would close it out live. Uh, Kyperian Birian asks if I've got James White's book. I've got several of his books. I think w I've got the Roman Catholic Controversy, I believe, in Logos Bible Software. Is that the book that you're asking about? Um, I am a big fan of James White and highly respect him, even if I take issue with some of his beliefs and, and, and more of his behavior, but um, I heavily rely upon his work in my own. So yes, I will be. Um, uh, scripture alone, I think I have Kyperion Brian, but I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. 
But anyway, so if you uh, have not been particularly enjoying the God as Author analogy series, come back and give me another shot to secure your interest a little bit better um, in two weeks' time by uh, in, in an episode in which I present my um, underdeveloped case for um, for Sola Scriptura in anticipation of my debate with a Roman Catholic uh, about a month or so after that. Um, for those few of you who have watched this live, thank you so very much. It means a lot. I, Cameron Bertuzzi of um, uh, Capturing Christianity posted a meme on Facebook today. I think it was today. Where it was, uh, uh, there were several frames in the meme in which, and in one of them, or in, 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 in them, a uh, YouTuber is talking to his live streamers and thanking them. And then the second to last frame says, you know, live viewers zero. And then the last frame is him saying bye bye with a tear rolling down his eyes, whatever. You know, the idea being here you are trying to be a, a, a YouTuber and talking to people as if they're watching you live, when in reality, nobody is. And, Sometimes I feel that way, so um, I really appreciate those few of you who have stuck around live to watch this. Um, for those of you who are watching after the show has been streamed, thank you as well, just not quite as much. Um, all of you, whether you've watched live or after it's been archived, please do consider liking uh, the video, clicking that thumbs up button on YouTube. Um, if you like some of the material here in the channel, please do subscribe to the channel and click that notifications bell um, as uh, as the weeks and months progress, I plan to have a whole bunch of really great episodes. And don't forget, if you're interested in learning Biblical Hebrew and don't want to spend the time or money to do, um, to do a, uh, a traditional, formal education in Biblical Hebrew, um, then check out my series in this very channel called Biblical Hebrew 101. You might find it useful. Uh, thank you, Jamie, for saying that you're being, uh, that you're sharing my stuff and that it's making an impact. I appreciate it. And thank you, Shannon, for saying that you enjoyed the episode. It means a lot. I'll stop rambling. Um, again, two weeks from today, Monday, January 25th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, we'll be come back here for an episode on Sola Scriptura. And then, um, uh, and in between, one week from today, don't forget that on alternating Mondays, I do Rethinking Hell live at the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel. Again, Mondays at 6 p.m. Pacific. So tune in there. Uh, and then, Kyperion, to answer your question, will I plan on doing Greek? Um, at some point, yes, but uh, I plan on doing Hebrew, uh, two semesters worth of Hebrew first. So it'll be a while before I get to Greek. Thanks again. I really appreciate you tuning in, and uh, I'll talk to you later. See you next time. been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...